This is John. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of months. In the meantime, get him out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Bindu? Hey. All right, let's crack on. Uh, if, in case it isn't already clear from our last podcast, Peter McAuley's book, No Mean Soldier, reads like something out of a Hollywood movie, or perhaps a modern-day Bernard Cornwall novel. Uh, We left off with Peter Macleese having served in the British Army and as a mercenary commander during an ill-fated contract for Holden Roberto of the Angolan FNLA. We strongly recommend that you watch episode 18 if you haven't already done so, but in case you haven't, here's a little summary. Despite his poverty-stricken off and violent childhood, Macleese truly had found his calling as a professional soldier. Macleese would ultimately spend nine years in the British Parachute Regiment and the legendary Special Air Service, the SAS. As we discussed in our episode, Macleese served during a relatively high operational tempo as far as post-World War II goes. Serving through Aden and Borneo, Macleese proved his mettle but was still plagued by the residual effects of his rough upbringing. After an unfortunate fistfight with another SAS trooper after his Borneo campaign, he was unceremoniously booted from the regiment and sent back into the Paris Ending his army career as an infantry instructor with the Paris and a fully qualified NCO, Peter returned with apprehension to the civilian world. His brief foray into the civilian world proved to be a rough awakening. After toxic relationships, a divorce, and various stints in prison, McAleese made an attempt to return to the world he knew, professional soldiering. With the return of the peacetime British Army out of the question, McAleese joined up with various security companies run by shady individuals. While most of these contracts went bust, the ill-fated Angola contract sent Peter to the war-torn state of Angola in 1975. Serving with the anti-communist FNLA as an officer, McAleese was thrown into a Lord of the Flies-esque situation. The infamous Costa Giorgio, aka Colonel Callan, proved to not only be incompetent but murderous, executing a large number of British mercenary volunteers in addition to an untold number of African FNLA soldiers. With MPLA communists on the offensive, McAleaves was forced to lead the remnants of the FNLA and surviving foreign volunteers into a fighting retreat out of the country. And that is where we join him now. Again, as Bindu mentioned, that's just a summary of episode 18. This is now episode 19 of the podcast. Yes, we strongly recommend you go back and listen to episode 19 if you have not already done so. Number one, Peter had quite the life. And uh, number two, we're going to go right into it with... No additional context here, assuming you've listened to the last podcast. Absolutely. And uh, for your reference as well, this is actually part two of a three-part series about the life and travels of Peter McAleese. We're basically going to cover the remainder of No Mean Soldier now, which is his 1993 best-selling book. And for part three, we're going to have a very special interview with the man himself all the way in, I think he'll be in Birmingham that day. Um, all the way in the UK, we're somewhere in Western the, Canada. Western Canada, nestled in the Rocky Mountains. It's pretty obvious where we are, but yeah, we're, we not, are, we're in a bunker not, in the mountains. We are not in the UK, and uh, we're yeah. going to be doing it remotely. It'll be interesting, and uh, that'll be released very shortly with a very special announcement in that podcast. 
might be related to my business uh, ventures at Fireforce Ventures, fireforceventures.com. Great militaria. Check it out. Let's go right into this. Uh, Mac Lee's is now out of Angola. It's it's kind of a shit show. On the yeah, way that's... Out, like going, going into uh, Zaire, which was run by Mobutu at the time. And um, basically, he, he has a uh, a professional wig out as, as far as we goes as as far as like wig outs go it's professional but he's not happy with holden roberto he's not happy with the leadership of this crappy mercenary outfit that's kind of their their laissez-faire attitude as far as military disasters go with the exception of everyone getting killed or captured that's about as bad as it can get yeah yeah so it's pretty bad um and uh you know he has to find he has to find the the next adventure. Mm-hmm. So uh, through a a friend of his, uh, Chuck Hind, he hears about the Rhodesian military, the Rhodesian conflict. Now we mentioned in uh, episode eighteen that he knew about this conflict because it was it was one of the contracts that he could have potentially been involved in, actually fighting on the side of the African nationalists against the Rhodesian Front government. However, we're into 1975-1976 now as the Rhodesian Bush War is ter- uh, intensifying and I guess that the public is really polarized on the Rhodesia issue. It's not this clear-cut like uh, political crisis anymore where British citizens kind of took one side or another. Or sorry, could all collectively just be like, yeah, this is wrong because they're going against the rule of law or whatever. This is just straight up like a war and the number of foreign volunteers entering Rhodesia is increasing by the day as the war is intensifying and it's becoming this in the minds of at least um, let's just say like professional soldiers and maybe more conservative individuals at that this time it was a just a straight up anti-communist struggle that was regarded as justified whereas maybe the international community didn't see it the same way yeah. um, so th- it was a there's a the time times were changing. Also, attitudes were. I don't remember where I read this, but I read in a number of sources that when the Rhodesians first declared UDI in 1965, the British government was certainly not happy, but the majority of the British public was pulled to be sympathetic to the Rhodesians. Not so much a decade later. Definitely, winds had changed, but at the same time, you have a lot more soldiers, especially now that Vietnam's over are entering this as sort of a, an anti-communist struggle. Yep. So there's... I would say people are actually getting more polarized over it. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, sorry. I, I take that back. I kind of misspoke there earlier. Basically, like, people were more, I guess, at least on an official basis against it, and professional soldiers didn't really want to go there. Uh, and it was... Just the context of the war was changing. More foreign volunteers. Yeah, uh, we we could analyze it to death, beat beat that horse. But there's you know more foreigners were showing up, including British citizens like Peter Macleese, who really like he's he's been left with very little money because this contract went completely bust. He he uh, he tried his best, but if you know anything about this uh, Colonel Callan figure, the Costas Giorgio situation it was it was a total gong show and he's lucky he actually got out of there in one piece given how readily he executed his own guys right 
Well, he he didn't, didn't he? Wasn't he later executed by the yeah, Angolan also, state? He was also executed by the Angolan state. So he had like a lot of Peter had a lot of people that yeah could have potentially killed him, and he he got out of there in one piece, luckily enough. So through Chuck Hine, hears about this place called uh, Rhodesia, and you know he's just like, you know what? I want to keep up with this professional soldiering. This is an opportunity. It's not like. Uh, say like John Allen Cooey who we're going to look at in the future um, who went there for like straight up anti-communist pro-Christian civilization reasons it just this is the next fight and maybe I can get something out of this he does get stuff out of it by the way um, it's a it's an important experience in his I guess professional soldiering and uh, leads to other adventures throughout Africa so through Chuck Hind he joins the army We've spoken a lot about Rhodesia on this podcast, and we assume that most of our listeners have at least an idea of the conflict and uh, why it was fought and what was going on. But as we've mentioned in our last podcast, Peter sort of describes in a few paragraphs each of the conflicts he's going into, and we figured we wouldn't leave the Rhodesian one out, and this is a good refresher for maybe maybe this is the first podcast you've uh, listened from us, and you don't know much about the Rhodesian Bush War, so... Listen to from us. Listen to from us? Yeah. What what did I say? Listen from us. Listen to from us. Okay. I had joined the army of a country which was locked in a fight to the death. Mr. Ian Smith, the Rhodesian premier, headed a government which refused to countenance a change to the system where 240,000 whites held total political and economic power over 6 million blacks. He had steered the country through the unilateral declaration of independence from Great Britain and by 1976, Rhodesia had no international friends. Even South Africa was under tremendous pressure from Dr. Henry Kissinger, the American Secretary of State, to stop supporting Rhodesia with arms and oil. It is not surprising that the atmosphere amongst all Rhodesians, not just those in the army, was tense. A glance at the map shows the country was surrounded by antagonistic communist black states. My experience in Angola the previous year came in useful, because the Portuguese withdrawal from Angola on one side and Mozambique on the other, both countries which succumbed to post-colonial communist regimes, placed great pressure on Rhodesia. Both communist governments, along with Zambia and Botswana, gave safe haven for the black communist organizations outlawed in Rhodesia. The two principal groups were Joshua Nkomo's Zipra and Robert Mugabe's Zanla. Communist bloc countries headed by Russia and China were applying a sort of domino theory to southern Africa, as countries became communist one after the other with the object of making the whole of southern Africa communist. The Rhodesian communists were Joshua Nkomo's Zipra, the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, and its political wing Zapu, the Zimbabwe African People's Union, which recruited from the Matabili tribal lands. The fighters lived in camps in Zambia and infiltrated Rhodesia from the north and west, from Zambia looping south through Botswana to cross Rhodesia's long western border with Botswana. The second and largest communist group was Robert Mugabe and the Reverend Nadabeningi Sotoli's Zanla, the Zimbabwe African Nationalist Liberation Army, and its political wing ZANU, Zimbabwean African National Union, which recruited from the other side of Rhodesia, from Mashana land, where the Shona tribe is the country's biggest population group. They had built some very large training camps in Mozambique, which were seriously Marxist and gave Zanla great support, and they infiltrated Rhodesia through the thick bush 
along her 1,300-kilometer eastern border. In fact, only 220 kilometers of Rhodesia's 3,000 kilometers of border was with a friendly nation. South Africa was friendly, but international pressure was increasing to stop the South Africans assisting the white regime in Rhodesia. Quite simply, the Rhodesians had their backs against the wall, and there was no time for frivolity. Even the drinking and womanizing was pursued with intensity. So it was a very tense time, and we're, we'll, we'll very go, much so. We'll go like deeper into what that what that like manifests itself into because it it gives me a lot of Peter Kemp vibes towards the end of his experiences. Um, but when he does show up, he obviously wants to join an elite unit because of his background, being in the parachute regiment, being in a special air service, being a mercenary commander, commandant in Angola. So he figures he should try out for the Rhodesian Special Air Service. Despite his extensive experience at this point, having actually been operational, the fact that he had, for only, I guess, like a two and a half, maybe three year period, been out of uniform in some capacity or out of operations, he had otherwise been war fighting for that, for most of his life at this point. He, uh, just like everybody, every foreign recruit or volunteer that showed up to Rhodesia was treated as, uh, you know, a blank slate. The Rhodesian army never really entertained mercenaries in the way that, like, Soldier of Fortune magazine or whatever would have you believe. Maybe at a governmental level, there were private security groups... There were range detectives, stuff like that, throughout the Rhodesian state. But even at the height of the Bush War in 1976, with a major manpower shortage where basically every uh, white male in the country was conscripted to do a few years of national service, a lot of the blacks were kind of being not explicitly dragoon but kind of implicitly like hey like you should join the military whether the Rhodesian African Rifles or the Rhodesian Defense Regiment or the BSAP um, there was a serious manpower shortage and, and part of that was the intensification of the war uh, another major reason was massive white emigration so a lot of white Europeans were like that we don't necessarily want to be a part of this not everybody in Rhodesia was a super hyper right-wing death squad Bible basher diehard Ian Smith fan right like it was a country just like any other country there's people that have different perspectives even though they're in Africa and they're white Rhodesians uh, it doesn't mean that they fully supported this conflict some also could just see the writing on the wall exactly so running. for, for yeah. whatever reason and the fact that there was a out and that was to just go to South Africa or go to the UK or go anywhere else in the world what that was in the Anglosphere the United States Australia Canada just get the heck out of there um, a lot of people took up that opportunity and we this is a theme that's in our very first uh, podcast that we ever did that was uh, Chris Cox's Fire Force like the first thing that happens in that book is he's on a train to South Africa to get out of there to not take part in this war. For whatever inexplicable reason, he he doesn't ever get off the train in South Africa and he just takes it all the way back to Rhodesia, right? So it's just, it's everywhere. Uh, a lot of people are leaving, trying to get out, despite border control attempts and stuff and the National Service and draft letters and stuff. 
like Rhodesia just did not have the manpower. On top of that, rapidly the sanctions are bleeding them dry in terms of money, munitions, oil reserves, all that stuff. This is what uh, Peter's coming into. Despite their need for guys like him, it's still a blank slate. So what that means is, if he wants to join the Rhodesian Special Air Service, he has to take selection again for the for the second time in his life. Peter Mackley's in his early 30s or mid 30s has to take Special Air Service selection after having been a Special Air Service operator for like nine years, basically, in the British Army Parachute Regiment NCO and a mercenary warlord. He is now a lowly recruit in the Rhodesian Special Air Service. Now, this is something I, I know because I there's a gentleman who maybe we'll interview in the future, but he did uh, basically most of the Special Air Service selection course. And I've, I've known like a few Rhodesian SAS guys. Um, unfortunately, one of them is now, now deceased, uh, the late Nick Carter, who's a trooper in the SAS. Uh, a lot of these... A lot of these guys that were in the SAS had no prior military experience. Unlike the British Army, where generally speaking, you'd have to go to regiment first. Now, it wasn't always like this, but most of the time throughout the existence of the SAS history, going back to the Second World War, you'd join like a regular line unit or an armored unit or a cavalry unit, and then like you'd apply to do the selection course, right? So you'd have to do some time in the Army, get the basics down before you go to the intense selection course and prove that you're you're worth your weight as a special forces operator. In Rhodesia, just because of the manpower shortages and kind of the the, the way that Graham Wilson, Major Major Wilson, the Phantom Major, uh, by the way, actually one of the most decorated Rhodesian soldiers, um, Major Wilson, the way he kind of ran the SAS was like, let's let we need guys. Right, we need guys. If they can prove right off the bat they're capable of doing the job of doing long range patrols and infiltrating behind enemy lines and all that special forces stuff, um, then they are good to go. Right, so you could actually apply for a direct selection course. And I think the closest equivalent to that today would be the uh, United States military x ray baby program. Even like BUDS isn't really a good comparison to that because, like. Even through uh, BUDS, so that's the U.S. Navy SEALs selection, There's you have to do Navy boot camp before you go to BUDS. Same deal with MARSOC, right, Marine Corps Special Forces. You have to go Marine Corps boot camp, probably go to an infantry unit, and then MARSOC. You don't get to just, like, guy off the street, show up. Same with the Canadian military, right? Canadian Army, you have to do BMQ, you have to do your BMQL or SQ or whatever. Go to your DP-1 infantry or DP-1, whatever, course, and then you go into the regiment. Same with the British Army today. Go to regiment, join the Anglicans, join the Rifles, do your basic, then you go to the SAS and try to prove to them that you can be an SAS soldier. Um, that's kind of a modern thing, because obviously if you can't be in the SAS, then you're still in a regiment that you can be returned to, and you can still be a good use of taxpayer money. Rhodesia wasn't just thinking about taxpayer money because there was no taxpayer money because their currency was worthless. They were all in it to win this war. So people off the street were being plucked and uh, told, hey, just show up to selection. You'll be issued kit. We'll shave your head and you're going to prove to us you're going to be a special forces soldier. 
it wasn't for everybody. It was uh, is a big ask to take Joe Civi off the street. Luckily for Peter, he had a little bit of experience. Uh, but that being said, I don't imagine it was that fun of an experience. It wasn't totally humiliating or emasculating or whatever to have to take that selection course again. But obviously, he was an older guy, and the instructors knew he was an a former SAS guy who had actually been operational. So the uh, bar was certainly set very high for him in selection. He he does write a, a little bit about uh, the actual selection course and kind of the hallmarks of it, at least in the Rhodesian context. They gave each of us a brick. We had to carry the bloody thing everywhere. These bricks are your loved ones, shouted the instructors. You know what women are like? They hate being left alone. At any time. All the bricks had girls' names. Mine was called Elsie. One man had a brick called Arthur because he was an ex-Royal Marine. For hours they made us climb in and out of an empty swimming pool, stark naked, time after time sliding down the waterless slide till our arses were raw. And finally, finally... Around 4 a.m., I dropped Elsie on the concrete pool floor, breaking her in two. Stop, everyone, screamed the instructors, horrified. Macaulay's has dropped his loved one. In the dark, naked, we formed up in three ranks and gave Elsie a solemn funeral with full military honors. Then she was unceremoniously dumped in a dustbin. I was given another brick, which, to underline my promiscuity, was called Elsie 2. So, kind of psychological, I guess you'd say, mindfuck games where they're, like, yep. giving them bricks and telling them this is your girlfriend, you have to carry it around naked so, around a swimming pool. Yeah. And well, it's just the going into the swimming pool with, like, water over and over again yeah. and coming out and stuff. It's, it, 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 like, any water torch. Like any well, water there is no water, though, in the pool. The, oh, is it complete? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. dry. Yeah, that's how he so breaks it. Dry. Yeah. Uh, he didn't drown it. He broke it. <laughs> that still sucks, though, having to drag it into, like... Oh, absolutely. Like, up and down, basically. Yeah, probably worse, it. but... Because uh, yeah. there's no buoyancy, but also... Yeah. And, yeah, and then after it dies, quote-unquote, they have so, uh, a military funeral <laughs> for a, it. There's a word for the brick, and it's... Because it's, it's cinder block. A lot of people call it cindy. For Cindy Block, you get it? Yes, yeah, Cindy it's, Block, yeah. They call it the Cindy Blocks, and it's something that you see uh, still to this day in South Africa. The uh, Special Task Force guys, train, so the Police Special Task Force trains with the Cindy Blocks. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures of the South African Defense Force a little bit later on in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, still using the Cinder Blocks, even with like basic recruits. So it, it's just a, the suffering of having to carry this thing that no matter how you carry it is always going to be uncomfortable and unwieldy so I, I guess like, I've seen it um, with different special forces selections like they'll make guys carry jugs of water like can't like jerry's of water the 20 liter jerry or whatever the water splashes around and it's just there's no good way to hold it because you have to also hold your weapon and all your other crap that you've got for selection so you'll see guys throw it on their backpacks on their head like a African yeah. lady in a tribal village somewhere. And, yeah. But there's just no way to hold the thing because it's unwieldy. It's off balance. Um, that's what I see a lot of now. But in Africa, it's it's Cindy Block. That's the equivalent where you're holding uh, you're holding this this unwieldy thing. That's there's there's no easy way to hang on to it to grip. It's not like a 
like a plate, like a like a bumper plate or something, like an Olympic, you know, weightlifting plate. This thing is not designed to be like lifted and and like held for long periods of time. There's nothing to grasp onto. There's no rope. There's 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 nothing. It's just you just suffer. And uh, if you carry it for too long in a certain part of your body, so against your hip, on your shoulders, on your back, it's going to eventually chafe and blister and tear at uh, everything underneath and it's it's not pretty so it's it's weeks of this weeks of this in addition to all of your other bushcraft skills um, resistance to interrogation uh, there I know the SAS did at least in Rhodesia did a lot of waterborne operations at least training for waterborne operations I don't think they did too many actual operational ones during the war but that was part of the course uh, it, it was a uh, in in some regards on par with the British SAS course happening in Hereford at the same time, arguably even harder at certain points given the conditions, the heat, and uh, the, the psychological strain that all the candidates candidates would be under. So Peter's actually pretty impressive for having done it in two completely different contexts, and I I, I don't know if if. I, I'm not like a. Uh, neither us, of us are super duper hard charger special forces operator types. But if for whatever reason I was in that shoe, in in the in the shoes of a guy that had proved himself in a course, or even if it was something real basic, like, can you imagine? Because for you, you have a history degree. I have a history degree. Imagine if, like, for some reason, like, you just had to do it all over again from first year and write, rewrite every single essay. Yeah, like, that would be First off, you got your history degree taken away from you for some reason, and then you had to, like, redo it. And no, I'm not saying a history degree was hard, but it's just, like, the redundancy you would feel. and the, yeah. Just, the mental just five stra- years of having to do that. Yeah, yeah. Now. The mental strain yeah. of feeling that redundant and having to redo things and reprove yourself... And you're doing this in your 30s. Yeah. That would be a total mindfuck, and I don't, I, like, I wouldn't even be able to do my degree again, I don't think. I think that would be too, like, I would get so angry, like, pissed off, like, why am I doing this, right? Yeah. But this is what Peter has to deal with in a completely foreign country uh, that he kind of doesn't, Obviously explains the politics, but I'm sure at the time, like he's just kind of showing up there blind because he's showing up right after Angola. Yeah. So what he hears is probably just from the BBC. He doesn't know the situation on the ground. Um, he obviously knew it was going to be like a difficult course. I, I, I would imagine someone would have told him along the line, but uh, that would be a that would be quite the mindfuck if I could again. I couldn't imagine doing SAS selection twice. Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing my university degree twice. My university degree was nowhere near as intense or difficult as an SAS uh, selection course. Mm-hmm. So it sucked. And uh, the man got through it. And not only that, he qualified again as a military freefall jumper, um, doing like operational jumps in Rhodesia, one of his 17 operational jumps in his career, or several of them actually, were in Rhodesia. Which is pretty uh, impressive. Always behind enemy lines. Always under budgeted, out of crappy C forty seven aircraft. Yeah. Uh, always outgunned, outmanned, 
outnumbered, um, but never really outfought, which is uh, very impressive. So this is uh, this is the Rhodesia that Peter finds himself in, qualifying as a military uh, free follower again for the for the second time now again <laughs> yeah. also again. So not only doing the essay selection, but qualifying as a military uh, jumper, a parachutist a second time. He starts uh, going on operations with the Rhodesian SAS as a lowly trooper. So, like, the lowest... He's not even given, like, an NCO rank right off the bat or anything like that. Uh, and he goes on operations against Zanla and Zipra, as you mentioned, the two main terror groups that were uh, mm-hmm. run by Nakomo and Mugabe, respectively... Or, sorry, was it Mugabe and Nakomo, respectively, uh, and Frelimo, oh, along what, what... I guess you could... I think Peter describes it as, like, the Russian front, right? Yes. Uh, and for Limo in uh, Mozambique. Yeah, so. it's called the Russian front because of the sheer amount of uh, Russian ordnance that was moving across it. Obviously, the Soviet Union supplied communist groups, including these uh, black nationalists, but also communist groups in Africa. And I think we, we talked about it on the Dennis Camp podcast about... Uh, a town that was literally called like Little Moscow because it had so much Russian ordnance there. And by the end of the war, like these communist groups are like driving T-72 tanks and things. Like they got a lot of material from the Soviet Union. And I think even even though in most cases the Rhodesian army was better trained and had a was more combat effective than both of these groups, Zipro was a bit better than Zamla, but... At the the end it of the, is an understatement, I'd say significantly. Significantly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you can have the best soldiers in the world, but if what the enemy is getting brand new military equipment from like a world superpower and you're like still relying on a shoestring budget when every country in the world is sanctioning you, you're gonna lose. Yeah, when yeah. Uh, a lot of zipper guys were getting trained straight up in East German military academies. They're, yeah. They're, they're West Point equivalents, like they were now, Zanla, not so much. They're being trained in, like, Marxist uh, happy camps. Yeah, and like learning, learning, learning songs. style. Yeah. yeah, learning, like, songs and stuff and marches yeah. and how to parade. Yeah. And, but even a lot of Zippers guys often lost to the Rhodesians in open yeah. combat. But the at the end of the day, you can't, like, wars are often won with money. And that's, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they just, they had the manpower that the Rhodesians and the money the Rhodesians didn't. Absolutely. So as a fully qualified Special Forces operator, Peter does conduct several missions with the Rhodesian SAS, notably with a few interesting personalities. Um, Captain Bob McKenzie, who was formerly a a paratrooper himself, who served a a U.S. paratrooper, actually, who served in the Vietnam War. He's awarded the Purple Heart, given like a... 80 or 90% disability rating from the VA, which basically means like you're, you've, you've been injured so badly, you're disabled, you're getting like full pension or whatever, or close to a full pension. And the dude kind of gets bored and goes to Rhodesia as a correspondent for Soldier of Fortune at different times, does SAS, the SAS thing, becomes an officer, gets commissioned. Uh, he's later awarded the Silver Cross of Rhodesia, which is the second highest valor decoration for American listeners, that would be the equivalent of like a um, Navy Cross or Distinguished Service Medal, one step below the Medal of Honor for Commonwealth listeners. That's like your Military Cross or Distinguished Service Order, one step below the VC. So that's that's just how hardcore of an operator this guy was. 
and uh, and of course um, the kind of quirky Hungarian storesman who was actually an American himself and a former uh, U.S. Army paratrooper Imre Baca, uh, who was just a crazy Hungarian guy who joined the U.S. Army and. He was, like, vaguely involved in the Hungarian Revolution, too, as a kid. <laughs> uh, it, so, like, a lot of characters that he serves in. A lot of uh, very notable notable people. And um, notably, there's there's one raid into, I think it was Zambia, where, uh, it, like, it's partially waterborne. And he, we're not going to read that one because it's just there's, there's a lot of different contacts. There's just so many... Like we'll have to ask Peter himself uh, in part three, so do listen to that if you want to find out more about the specifics of certain operations and stuff. But let's just say like they they schwack the enemy pretty good every time. Um, very very well coordinated dudes, and like you said, like almost every tactical engagement, the Rhodesians were outgunned, outmanned, outfunded, and uh, on the ground they always still won. Right, it's very seldom they lost. And I think the only casualty in this one major attack he talks about in Zambia is one guy falls in a river and they presume him dead, but he later turns up. <laughs> and it's just like, well, that was our one casualty. It was a one MIA temporarily, right? So yeah. it's just versus 17 terrorists killed. Yeah. So these guys are lightning quick in terms of their strikes across the, the border. Um, he's there, uh, what's, what's the name? Fucktown? Is it Fuck City? I think it was Fuck City. Was it Fuck City? What's this? So going back... Also called Little Moscow. Also called Little Moscow. He's involved in that engagement that uh, Dennis Procom talks about. Which is like conventional warfare. Like they're firing at each other. Mortar and artillery duels. Yeah, it's almost trench warfare in some ways. Yeah, yeah. so he's involved involved there. Peter's like everywhere. He's all over the country. But, again, he is starting to get a little old. Uh, He's in his... Late 30s, as the war progresses, kind of into 1978, he actually meets a woman named Jane, and she is a nurse at, interestingly enough, the only white nurse in a black hospital, like a blacks-only hospital. I'm not saying that the hospitals were, like, intentionally segregated, it was just kind of... Just how it turned out, yeah. Yeah, just kind of geography, and the, well, rem- so remember, the remnants six, of the British colonial Yeah, there's six stuff. million people, like, you're going to have a lot of black-only things just by sheer numbers, right? Yeah, so yeah. but she was, interestingly enough, the only white nurse in this in this black hospital. Um, it's kind of a fact that Peter and, and Jane were both kind of proud of and um, he takes a liking to this woman because unlike his, his previous wife who was fully like a civilian and like kind of like a housewife, uh, who who really like didn't want him to like move around so much like wanted to stay wanted to kind of stay with the army and stay stable and not roam around as a nomad as, as yeah. Peter's doing. Um, this woman, because of the fact that she did work in the hospital, she saw a lot of military casualties come in. No doubt members of the Rhodesian African Rifles or BSAP or Rhodesian Defense Regiment that were just getting maimed and chewed up by like, the consequences of this war. Landmine strikes. She was seeing like busloads of civilians getting carted in. Um, with missing limbs, all that nasty business, all the all the stuff that, all the stuff they don't show you in the papers, like she had to deal with, uh, they resonated on a different level, and they clicked as a result, right? Just because they had that shared 
kind of uh, experience. And he kind of falls head over heels for this lady. He gets married. But now he's a married man, and he's 37, and he's just a corporal in the SAS. He does get promoted, but he's just like, there's no further career advancement. And there's a, there's a bit of uh, writing on the wall as far as Rhodesia goes. The situation's getting bad. His wife's seeing it. Peter's seeing it. And there is an incident where kind of... He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implicitly implied. A lot of the whites are feeling desperate enough that they're lashing out against um, the black populace in some ways, which Peter's not a big fan of, right? Again, he's not a politically motivated volunteer and like if he had that serious anti-communist zeal about him he might have like maybe had more rosy colored glasses when he was looking at or he might have had a rosier recollection about things like this but there was an incident he talks about in the book where basically they have a black prisoner of war and the guy like surrenders and I think he's actually a civilian he's not even clearly like a Zanla guy. He's just a random civilian they find walking in the bush. Which is normal. I mean, it's Africa, and so yeah. much of Rhodesia was rural, so it might be a little weird, but like it's not super uncommon, right? And uh, very famously in the Nick Downey combat footage, which is some of the best combat footage of a Fire Force mission in Rhodesia, you'll literally see it like guys are in a firefight, and there's just random like women and children walking around. Right, because it's just it's Africa, it's rural. Mm-hmm. People are just like, "Well, it's what's going on here." And it's like a big fire force mission, right? So, uh, anyways, this guy's basically caught in crossfire. He surrenders. He's like, "You know, I mean, you no harm." And an SAS guy's like, tells Peter, "Like, you, like shoot this guy, right? You gotta swack him." And Peter's like, "What the fuck are you talking about? He's, he's a civvy. Like, I'm a professional soldier. I'm not gonna do this." And the guy um, who he doesn't name, but very unprofessionally, despite being, I think, even a subordinate, like, cusses him out and calls him, like, a pussy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Peter's just like, this ain't the unit for me. Now, most of the time, the dudes are conducting themselves very professionally, but things are getting bad enough that people are starting to slip up and make... What's the, they're, they're starting to, like, want to make more poor decisions and do things in a more total war mindset as the writing is on the wall and the walls are closing in. Yeah, there's, uh, I guess we should say, there's a sort of increasing paranoia, and with that always comes increasing brutality. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no, we've mentioned before, there was never, like, a My Lie incident in Rhodesia. The, the there's a bomb in photos, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a sec here. Yeah. There was, there was a My Lie in 77. Okay, let, let's... But I'll talk about it really brief. Okay. I won't, um, I won't segue too much, but I do need to mention it, because it's part of the... But there certainly are, like, soldiers who just start offing anyone who could potentially be a terrorist or terrorist sympathizer. Not many, but there are some. And there's there's more of a proclivity towards corporal punishment. Yeah. Um, rather than, like, the time and true-tested British methods of extracting information by psychological mindfuck means. Yeah. <laughs> it would just, like, you would just hit people. Hit guys with sticks until they yeah. started talking. So that's a, that's why I want to talk about the bombing incident. And it's just the... He doesn't mention in the book, but it's just... This just gives you the mindset. Because, again, he, Peter's not explicit in, like, 
the deep, like the major major reasons why okay. he eventually chooses to actually leave the SAS. And it's not like an indictment on the unit, but it's just like the mood of the country. So the the bombing incident was this guy. Um, it's a bit of a lefty photojournalist from. Oh yeah, the yeah. yeah. This... So he he had previously infiltrated the American Nazi Party in uh, in the U.S. to take photos of them, and he basically represented himself as a Nazi. Um, that, by the way, for our listeners, is a very hilariously weird group run by a guy named George Lincoln Rockwell. No, no, he. I don't think it was the real American Nazi Party. It was like one of the. This oh, was like one of the. Was, he was already. Groups. Okay. It was already like I think he had already been killed at this point. Yeah, like this was like seventy four or five. Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was like, no, 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 this was like this was like some like not not that American Nazi Party. No, you're thinking a little earlier. No, this is like like a weird like just redneck. I, I don't even know how to describe them. They were just like weird white. I- They're proto Christian identity. Does that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes so perfect proto, sense. Proto like proto, proto like, Aryan nations. Aryan nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Proto like the before. So yes, they were yeah. almost just like skinheads. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, the best way to describe them would be like skinhead Nazis in the U.S. And yes. they weren't like a suit. But anyways, he infiltrates them. Gets them actually like pretty interesting photos because like these people were obviously quite secretive because they didn't want to yeah. draw any major attention to themselves um they did their stuff in private they would like privately post up posters and try to do anonymous stuff and they, they didn't want like, their meetings to be photographed or recorded so this guy kind of infiltrated and it's like whatever okay interesting investigative journalism um he didn't cross too many ethical lines. He didn't do anything unethical. But in Rhodesia, he wanted to get his next scoop. Uh, and he volunteered with a fellow by the name of Major Mike Williams of the Grey Scouts. Interestingly enough, he was a U.S. Army World War II veteran, Korea War veteran, uh, who went basically for his... What he what he was what he acknowledged to be like his last war in Rhodesia, because he was getting old. He was one of the OCs in uh, the Grey Scouts, which is a cavalry unit. So they actually rode horses through to traverse rugged terrain in Rhodesia. And basically, um, this this guy, this uh, uh, R.J. Uh, Bauman, represented himself as a true blue Rhodesia, Rhodesian, right? Like an, like an American Rhodesian vet. And because of the era, because of the time frame, uh, 1976, 1977, it was just like, yeah, whatever, if you're... If you're in, you're in, right? Um, what do you want to do for us? And he's like, yeah, I want to take some photos. You know, support the cause, show what the guys are doing out there. And he's like, okay, uh, that sounds good. Um, he's taken out a few patrols, and uh, this is where the the ethics kind of go out the window. As a photojournalist, uh, he's given an army uniform, and I'm like, okay, I get it. I've seen that before. Nick Downey, um, Cecil, what's his name? Richard Cecil. Right, famous Rhodesian uh, journalists both had army uniforms while they were filming. Uh, Catherine Leroy in Vietnam, the French photojournalist, she was in an army uniform when she parachuted in with the uh, with the Americans into Vietnam at, at different points and accompanied them. Ernie Pyle, World War II, right? He was always in army fatigues in every photo, sometimes wearing an M1 helmet. Okay, I get it. You want to kind of blend in with the soldiers. You don't want to stick up like a sore thumb. But here's where the line has cro- the line gets crossed. The guy actually brought along an FN FAL rifle as a as a nonpartisan journalist who is, by the way, trying to like expose the racist Rhodesians. 
Uh, and it's now the, the story is really murky, but in 1977, a bunch of his photos are published. And it's, it's unclear what the real context is. It's a series of photos. The first photo shows a bunch of black prisoners in a stress position, like a push-up position, and a Gray Scout soldier who is unidentified pointing a pistol at them. Um, it's accompanied by a caption. It's actually like a series of photos, like three photos. Most people have only saw the main one where the guy's pointing his pistol at like a guy's head. And the story goes that the, he, he basically said, where the terrorists were the terrorists, then he'd take one of them behind the back and shoot at the shoot into the air or shoot into the ground or something. Yeah, make it look like yeah, he make it look him. like he killed him, and then like keep doing that until all these guys broke, right? He wouldn't actually yeah hurt anybody. It's like a, it's the usual like, British psychological torture. Yeah, it's what they did in Malaya. It's the same yeah. thing. So, um, but obviously the picture looks bad because it's a white man pointing a gun, a bunch of black people, and they're all in a stress position. The second uh, and by a guy who's like formally. Is known for reporting on like literal yeah. Nazis. Yeah. The, the second photo is pretty bad, and it shows a gray scout guy on his horse with his FNFAL in the, in the background, and in the foreground is a uh, black man with a rope around his neck. Now, in context of like a conflict or war, right? In detainee handling <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. You even think about the Malayan emergency and the fact that they hung dead bodies on sticks, right? Um, operationally, I can understand why that was done, right? Because yeah. you're you're a cavalry unit. You need to, like, if you drag someone by their arms, there's a potential for, like, even more serious injuries, you know? Because yeah. you're at least, you're, now, it doesn't look, at, you could, they could have maybe tied around his chest or something, you know? But he could have yeah. slipped out of that. So there's, there's probably some operational reason behind that, but... This is an American photojournalist publishing these photos in an American newspaper. What does it look like? It looks like a slave. Being, it looks like a slave being like lynched. Yeah, right? or, or just being. Yeah, and we should mention. Now, I'm not the justifying that is, that was a good tactic. No, the rope, but just from the way you described yeah. it, the rope is uh, attached to basically like a collar, so it yeah, looks even yeah, worse. Yeah, that's yeah. on his, and it's not like the the guy's being like slowly marched beside the horse, but it looks literally like. You know, from something for twelve years a slave. It looks exactly. It, it looks, looks bad. very bad in an American it looks context. Very bad. And the last and perhaps most famous one is a officer uh, identified as a Lieutenant Graham Bailey, nonchalantly kind of swinging a club around as a a black man identified as Mafat Nakube is lying in front of a hut and he appears to be dead. And this officer is just in his short shorts and swinging his club, yeah. holding his FN like he's a Chad. Looks very bad. Looks yeah. very bad. These stories come out. Um, there is some question about, like, why the hell... So, he's actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. There's some questions, like, why the hell were he slinging a rifle around? He's like, I had to sling a rifle around for them to accept me so that I could actually take photos with them. So they're like, okay, cool. 1977, That's that was the Pulitzer Prize for photography. That was a, It was awarded to this guy. A real story from, from, from Mike Williams and a bunch of other witnesses and the testimony of Mafat Nukube, who was in fact not dead, um, was uh, quite the opposite. So this guy, it's very murky, but he seems to have almost incited these guys to like, hey, you know what would be really cool for a photo? 
Like, if you posed him like this or whatever. <laughs> you, like, there was a little bit of that going on. I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm not, like, quoting exact things. But that was the vibe that a, that, um, a British journalist who was present during the events. Uh, by the way, this this is a British... I, um, geez, I can't remember his name offhand. But there was a British journalist who was pretty well known as a critic of Ian Smith and the Rhodesian Front government. So this is not like a Rhodesian Front guy or some super biased Rhodesian source. It was like a pretty impartial uh, British journalist who who did the... He's whatever... Whoever interviewed Ian Smith right before like Ian Smith got booted out as PM. He was the last guy to interview Ian Smith as Prime Minister. Um, he said that... Yeah, this guy like... This guy was really weird. He kind of like tried to like pose certain photos and he also said to the guys like by the way I'm not publishing these but we can use them as like training photos and they're like as the guys are like oh yeah sure we'll use them as like training photos or whatever and they're like, yeah we don't know you publish these um so it's not clear which photos were staged or what the heck was going on some of them were probably staged or at least like he prodded the soldiers in a certain direction advising them that these photos wouldn't be published uh the second source comes from well, the second thing comes from also this journalist and and Mike Williams, Major Williams. This guy actually at one point fired his weapon. And okay, I get it. If you're scared, you're being shot at, you fire a weapon. But he fired a weapon at a guy running away. And he explained this away. Bauman apparently explained this by saying, like, he shot the weapon because he wanted to prove he was all in by shooting a civilian who was running away. <laughs> I think that breaches some sort of journalistic ethics. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah, he shot at a guy running away. Yeah, uh, and then and finally, Mufat Nukube actually testified at the court martial of Graham Bailey, saying that like yeah, this guy whacked me and knocked me unconscious on the head, and I I'm so he still he was still alive, and he's probably still alive somewhere in Zimbabwe yeah. for all we know. Today. Wait, the journalist knocked him and whacked him. No, in the head. not the journalist. Okay. The, the, the officer did. Like, all it right. was, it was but it wasn't dead. But you know what? Yeah. The officer got kicked out of the Grey Scouts. Yeah, there's no other record of him. There's there's apparently some sort of court martial record out there. Mm. Um, it's a very murky story, but obviously, people were seeing this. I'm sure for a fact that unfortunately there were people in Rhodesia that looked at those photos and were like good yeah right even though like it was it's not it wasn't good it was it was really turning public opinion around the world against them it was not a good thing to do um they should have you know they did like have active psyop countermeasures to deal with this but I'm sure a lot of Rhodesians were like just like good because they're living this like myth of Invincibility that they can somehow pull this off. Well, and again, it's as as I mentioned, the the more paranoid, the more accepting of brutality and exactly. Like, and you mentioned, like we've talked this before. Even after Joe, um, even after Ian Smith uh, enters into a coalition government with uh, Bishop Abel Mazurwa, um, the war gets even bloodier, like in its yep. last year. Even when it's like there's a black uh, guy who's technically running the country. Yep. Um, just the longer the war, this war goes on, the more brutal and bloody it gets. Yeah. So Peter's just like, there's got to be something better here. Um, yeah. This regiment's not it, and the attitude is getting sketchy. So he he figures he still wants to serve. Yeah. In some capacity, so he applies to join the British South Africa Police Special Branch, which is the elite elite wing 
of the BSAP. The, yeah, the, the, the Intel wing of the BSAP, right? They're, they're Salus Scouts equivalent. In fact, a lot of pictures of supposed Salus Scouts um, on operations where they're all like black-faced and wearing all kinds of funky gear and jeans and stuff like yeah. that are special branch boys, right? A lot of people always misidentify because they, they use a lot of the same tactics as the Salus Scouts. So these are really switched-on dudes. There's a great picture of Peter actually in the book where he's just wearing short shorts, and he's like, Rhodesia's a land of short shorts. He's all <laughs> yeah. AK and stuff. It's super cool. These were these were, uh, the, the Salus Scouts or whatever, the BSAP. That's kind of generalizing it and simplifying it, but yeah. they were elite. They weren't, pat, they weren't like Patu, but they were, they were unique and elite in their own way. The SAS are initially like, we're not putting this transfer through, like, go fuck yourself, corporal asshole, get out of my <laughs> office kind of deal. But Peter's got friends, namely a certain sergeant major by the name of John Hutton, or better known uh, to many of us as Jock Hutton. A legendary guy, total legend. He deserves his own fucking podcast, which we will do one day. Uh, but basically, when he was about 18 years old, he jumped on D-Day. He was wounded a few days afterwards, took part in the Battle of the Bulge. He was a World War II veteran who jumped in C-47s, um, did the thing in World War II, fought through a bunch of other campaigns with the British Army, went to Rhodesia, became the Sergeant Major of the Rhodesian Special Air Service, did more military parachute jumping out of C-47s that were actually on D-Day, probably the same plane um, 30 years later. And uh, he passed away in, I think it was 2020 he passed away, but right before he died in 2019, in June, June 6th, he uh, he did a, a military free fall jump again at like age 95 or 96. Like, and he did that a few times, actually. Sponsored by, like, 5.11. This is super cool. Yeah. Look up Jock Hutton. He deserves his own damn podcast one day. But Jock actually knew Peter, and obviously they're both ex-British Army SAS guys. And he was just like, yeah, man, like, don't worry about what that asshole officer has to say. Rubber stamp. Uh, Peter's in Special Branch and starts operating in Special Branch. Despite his his good intentions and um, his want for, like, a job that is more conducive to, despite his wish for more like cloak and dagger work, where there's less of a chance of um, him being put in an awkward situation where a guy's like, uh, shoot that civvy or whatever, right? And he's looking for more professionalism. He finds a lot of the same issues in uh, Special Branch. There's a bunch of different cases where uh, Special Branch guys, in, in his experience, not, not 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 digging special branch guys because I know there's probably people that that served the BSAP that work with them. Um, most of them were probably super professional, but he does encounter the odd apples, bad apples. Uh, most most like notably like from what we read, like there was even like a guy that got really drunk one day, got in the back of his like truck which had a which had machine guns mounted on it, like a technical. Had his buddy also drunk, drunk drive him around, and he just was just shooting random black civilians. And it's just yeah. they actually got a. Of course, they got murder sentences. Um, I think they got like 10, 15 years each. Yeah. It's not like the Rhodesians accepted this, but there were bad cookies. Yeah. There were people that just 
they they were in special branch because they weren't in the army yeah. and they didn't have that military background or a military police background or even a civilian police background. They had just joined because of the manpower. Shortage. You had guys like Colonel Callan, exactly. Who, yeah, not with the same amount of power and authority, but guys who just either no respect for human life or you know not seeing a difference between civilians and uh, the tares or just. You know, bad dudes, dudes who didn't yep. respect civilian life. So he is—he's—he's uh, he's initially sent to do a little bit of cloak and dagger work on some cross-border raids. Actually, one of them into uh, an ANC compound. I think was it uh, Zambia? Zambia. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually crosses the border. He crosses like all the borders. He goes into South Africa. Actually, sorry, he's in South Africa for a while. Like he's all over the place, but I'm like. He is going after like the leadership of these terrorist groups. Um, these are serious, serious like cloak and dagger missions where basically they have a bunch of dudes cross borders pretending to be tourists with gym bags full of grenades. They find the guys' houses, they throw grenades in the houses, they leave. Like I guess cloak, dagger, and grenade. <laughs> Uh, maybe not so quiet, but um, they got the jobs done. They're carrying out like assassination missions and stuff against the leadership structure of these terrorist groups. Oftentimes, being paid by the South Africans. That's obviously, where the hell were the Rhodesians getting money for this? Yeah. Um, but of course, the South Africans, being self-interested, had the Rhodesians uh, in, in the one mission that Peter mentions. They were targeting ANC guys, the yeah. African National Congress, which was a South African like. The communist wing, communist enemy of the South Africans, not the Rhodesians. It, maybe the ANC were tacitly supporting Zanla and Zipra, different. Oh, they, more than tacitly. Like I think we have. Well, they they, they were they were friends, but it's not like they definitely had links. They had yeah. links, but it's just like they weren't going after Mugabe or Nkomo. Yeah. It was like it was just self interested. Like okay, oh yeah, they were definitely getting hoodwinked and doing yeah, South yeah. Africa's dirty work. Exactly, for them. Yeah. and uh, and obviously as a completely expendable asset. You know, typical. So they go on the missions like this, um, and, and of course, as part of that that special branch role is the the psyop role. They have to also go out into some of these like protected villages and stuff, and uh, basically win the hearts and minds. By 1977, 1978, it's a little too little, too late. Uh, Peter shows up at this place called Bindura, which is no relation to me, by the way. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no relation to you. No relation to you. It's in Zimbabwe now. It's about 50 miles northeast of Salisbury, right in the middle of Zanla sympathetic territory, uh, which is which is like he's going to the belly of the beast. Uh, he arrives at a place which is like a protected village, basically, where the government has set up this. It's not supposed to be like a relocation camp. But it almost feels like that. It's just this like town that they've built, this artificial town and uh, village for these people to safely live in, for um, where the communists can't infiltrate. So he shows up to this uh, protected village, Keep Three, as it's identified, and uh, it's it's basically a, in pretty bad shape. Uh, the people live in relative squalor, just kind of by design because of the fact that. To prevent a terrorist like influence, there's like checkpoints going in, there's checkpoints going out. 
food is controlled, everybody eats at the same time. That way, food can't be smuggled out to like a terrorist group or a terrorist cadre operating in the bush somewhere. Um, supplies, like everything is like on a schedule. And you know what else is on a schedule? Like prison camps. You know, so it's just yeah. it, it's not um, it's not optimal. And there's things that they have to do for security reasons. There's things they have to do for to prevent these people that are very sympathetic to Zanla to support Zanla. But it's also a catch twenty two because you do this to them, they're not going to support the Rhodesians. And he's he's put in this very hard situation where he has to kind of maintain that balance. And obviously with his, his wife's medical background, the first thing he does is he's like, yeah, we're doing the same thing we did in Angola. We're um, increasing the quality of healthcare received here. There's a lot of children actually like starving, like with bloated bellies and everything. And he's just like, no, these kids, I don't care if we're using money I don't have or we got to steal stuff. He evacs them to the nearest military hospital. Um, Two of the kids actually don't make it. Like, I think it was, like, six of them. He has to be like, no, like, these kids shouldn't be here. Like, they are, in, they need, like, IV drip. They need they need some serious help, right? So he evacs them immediately, like, the first thing he does. And uh, slowly but surely starts to win over some hearts and minds, trains some of the local auxiliary guys uh, by 1978, 1979 to be prepared to fight the enemy. These guys are, colloquially the, the term was uh, tame ters. So they're former Zanla or Zipper fighters that had defected to the Rhodesian cause after the uh, election of Bishop Abel Muzariwa in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. So these guys were semi-loyal <laughs> at, at yeah. best. Some of them were just straight up there to feed information to Zanla or Zipra. And uh, working with these balancing all these loyalties uh, Peter, he does make like he trains this unit to a pretty proficient standard but there's always like there's always weird issues there's unexplainable things and a lot of the whites at this point don't care as that sense of paranoia escalates um, there's a there's a real notable incident where the whites in like in Bindura so outside of Keep 3 like the main white township because it was pretty segregated the few whites that were left had a like a dance, and this is something that in Peter Kemp's book was mentioned in Poland when they're having this like in Poland they, they knew that the communists were coming at the end of World War Two, and they have this like ballroom dance, yeah, and they they are dancing like it's their last dance, uh, and the Rhodesians are having some real similar the white Rhodesians in Mandura like they're this is their last dance in the country it's 1979 it's almost over, um. A bunch of like terrorist guys cross over into the white township. They know this dance is happening because the intel is being fed. Right? It's just that you just can't control news like that. Uh, you can't. Really, there's no opsec. It's just there's signs all over town. Right? That there's come to this dance or whatever. And Peter knows something's going to happen, so he's his him and his troops are hyper vigilant. The the terrorists. All they do is, like, they fire, like, maybe one magazine worth of ammo. Don't hit anybody. Yeah, they probably fired it into the air. They leave, and in a complete pandemonium, all these white guys in their tuxedos run to random crooks and nooks and corners and pull out AKs and FNs and G3s and high high powers and stuff. 
and they just randomly start shooting outside, thinking that they're under like they're under attack, and it's Rourke's drift. Because of the random fire gunfire, the security force auxiliaries, the black soldiers on the Rhodesian side, think we're under serious <laughs> attack, and they start shooting, and um, it it's, falls to Peter to be like, "The fuck is going on?" And yeah. miraculously. No one is killed except for a few windows. Yeah, like no one's yeah hurt or killed. But it's just it it exemplifies well this paranoia that yep. like you know. And I mean there was real terrorists shooting at them, so I mean it, it's kind of understandable. But, they fired, but like, the response, like I mean, I think for like three four hours, like for the rest of the night, there's just there's firefights. There's random day. with shadows, like literally, yep. they're shooting at shadows. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and. Yeah, and fortunately, no one shot each other. But the yeah, it was a bunch of like guys in Rhodesian brushstroke, black guys shooting white men in tuxedos. Well, no, but they weren't. They were shooting like at Actually, shadows. They were shooting at nothing. Yeah, they were shooting, shooting at shadows. At yeah, just amazingly, no one died. Yes. Uh, after like this three-hour firefight, and it was like with all nothing. Over the town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all because like some Zanla guys trolled the party and yeah fired into the air. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, this and just the desperation was palpable at the end. It was it was really yeah. really uh, evident. So Rhodesia fell, and um, massacres were were committed by Zanla as soon as they took over. A lot of Peter's guys, uh, a lot of Peter's guys were killed in the immediate aftermath. A lot of the guys that he had trained, and and um, I guess we'll let Peter take it away and describe this. Another black man called Lazarus, who worked for the special branch, was a Matabili and had been trained in Russia for 18 months before changing sides and working for the Rhodesians. He was caught by Zanla in their post-election purges and taken outside Bindura to the mines. They tied him down, ripped open his stomach with a knife, and filled his intestines with burning coals. It was the end. So, we've said a lot this podcast about some of the unsavory things done by Rhodesians... And stuff, but we're not uh, we're not saying that the the other side were angels either. And there was some really horrific massacres and atrocities committed both during the Bush War and certainly in the aftermath. And some of the much of the nastiest uh, of it, nastiest examples of it, were directed at uh, blacks who'd either supported the Rhodesians or uh, you know switched sides during the war. And yeah, Peter's in a, in a- very messed up situation where yeah. he has some of the guys that he trained executing some of the other guys that he trained. Yeah, and it's he. There's a there's actually a certain point where he he drags it because one of the guys responsible for a lot of these atrocities again, just straight up executions. Or in the case of this poor guy Lazarus, who has coal, hot coals shoved into his intestines, like it's, it's a horrible image. Horrible way to go. Um, he. Uh, he actually takes one of these guys, the guys that have been executing his dudes, out to the bush before he's uh, basically kicked out of the country. And um, he has this moment where he's like, he's about to like snap and kind of cross his own line. And he has like, he literally has a gun pointed at this guy's head, like, you piece of shit. And he just remembers, like, I'm a fucking professional soldier. I can't do this. And anyway, shortly after that moment, he's like, I, I'm done here, right? Like, I'm, I'm crossing my own limits and stuff. Um, I've got to get out of here. So, South Africa beckons. There's still a border war there. 
and uh, with his young family now, because he has a he has a son and his his wife. He's married to Jane. He goes over to South Africa, where um, unlike in Rhodesia, uh, when he first showed up, because of the fact that he was in Special Branch and the SAS, the South Africans wanted to accept as many of these former Rhodesian servicemen as quickly as possible. After all, their army was. Their army suffered motivation problems at times because it was also a conscript army. There were issues with it. There were sanctions were mounting on South Africa. Um, the ANC was getting popular support around the globe. So, for that reason, uh, he they're like, yeah, we're, we're taking you on. And not only that, you're going to be a member of our elite 44 uh, Parabat, so parachute battalion. Um, sorry. And not only that, you're going to be a member of the 44 Parachute Battalion, which is like their elite uh, unit. As far as, you know, airborne capabilities, these Parabats were the best of the best in South Africa, short of like the Special Forces guys. And uh, they actually make him a Sergeant Major in pretty short order. Um, And they're like designed for us a selection course based off your experience because you've done two different selection courses. And he's like, wow, this is this is easy. This is an easy job. Back to training, right? Back to training up some guys. And guess what? Because Peter is a sicko. He decides, I just created this great selection course. And he actually runs a few guys through it. So they do like a trial run. And then they do the real run. And guess what? He joins the selection course as a candidate. The course he designed. The horrible, hard course with the Cindy blocks and the runs and the ruck marches and the and the torture and sleep deprivation. He does it, in his own words, basically just so to prove it can be done. And this is a man in his late 30s, early 40s, just like, it's go time. And he does his own horrible selection course that he designs to like, weed people out and uh, he passes of course so he does selection for a third damn time just just for Massachusetts reasons and uh, you know like there's not that being said despite like the the difficulties of the time he has a little bit of fun on that course notably he gets drugged with Valium by his own candidate so he's actually on parade and he's marching as the sergeant major and all of a sudden he's just like oh fuck and he's he passes out right in front of an officer, and the guy's like, are you drunk? And he's like, no, I don't know what's wrong with me. So he gets taken to, like, a base, and his soldiers are really, really, his paratroopers are really concerned about him. Like, oh, Sergeant Major, you okay? Here, I'll, I'll get you I'll get you some food. I'll get you some soup. You want some Coca-Cola or something? Make you feel better, right? Maybe just, like, malaria or something. And he's like, yeah, yeah, please, please. You know, he's, like, hungry and stuff, right? Because he's, like, in and out of consciousness, and the guys keep spiking Valium, in oh his Coca-Cola. God. So this happens for like... <laughs> I forgot this about happen- this. Yeah, this happens for like days until finally, like during a mo- brief moment of lucidity, the guy's like, no, put more Valium. He says something like that and, and he just like... Oh, it's just like he stops <laughs> eating the crap they give him and he figures it out. But it takes like... He's like in and out of consciousness for like a week. Um, but again, with uh, every new conflict Peter enters, because this is like his fourth con- fourth war now... Uh, fifth, eight, no, fifth, fifth, fifth yeah, because Aiden Borneo, man, that's fifth, and then Angola, Angola yeah, and so then this Rhodes. is war number five for him. Um, yeah. He gives brilliant context in the book to this conflict. 
My new enemy was SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization, which was the liberation and nationalist movement for Namibia. Like other African guerrilla movements, SWAPO was communist, trained by Russians and East Germans and supplied by the Soviets. SWAPO claimed to represent all Namibia, but like the other African liberation movements I had encountered, SWAPO had recruited tribally. The majority of SWAPO recruits came from the Ovambo tribe, which occupied the northern half of Namibia and made up 46% of the population. Now I had come full circle in Africa. SWAPO guerrilla bases in southern Angola were supported by the Marxist MPLA, which I had first come across during the chaotic days of January 1976 when I was in Holden Roberto's FNLA. Then in 1976, SWAPO was an emergent and weak force of about 2,000 men, but once the Portuguese left Angola, it grew rapidly in the fertile communist ground of Marxist Angola to over 10,000. More importantly, SWAPO was able to transfer its bases from Zambia, which were well out of the area and their interest far down the Caprivi Strip, to communist Angola and infiltrate Namibia directly over a long frontier. By the time I joined the South African army, the security situation in Namibia was beyond the control of the South African police and was firmly in the hands of the South African army. All of this may sound similar to the problems which had faced Smith's Rhodesian regime, but South Africa had three great advantages. It was not completely surrounded by land frontiers. It had a much larger white population, 4 million among some 20 million blacks in 1976, and it had economic strength. The South Africans were horrified by the prospect of a double threat from terrorism from the ANC in the east through communist Mozambique and Zimbabwe and from SWAPO in the west through communist Angola. The government took special measures. It doubled the length of its national service to 24 months, recruited Asians, coloreds, and blacks into the army, and developed its own arms industry. The result was to produce a standing army of some 7,000 the result was to produce a standing army of some 70,000 men with a total mobilization of 400,000 available by calling up the reserves, the citizen force, and local home guard commandos. Of these, about 30,000 to 40,000 were employed in Namibia at any one time. So uh, in South Africa, again, he is part of the 44 Parabats, the, or sorry, 44 Parabat, not because not, that's, that's an Americanism, 44th. Because you, you used to do that. What? 30, 32nd Battalion. It's 32 uh, Battalion, right? Oh, yeah. That's just the, it's a British thing, you know. One yeah. rifles, two rifles, three Gurkhas, or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. One Anglican. It's weird. Anyway, but yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's not like how you'd actually say it. The Americans say it like 40, 101st Airborne, but it, yeah. if it was British, it would be 101 Airborne. Actually, there is a 101 Logistics Brigade in, uh, in the UK. Anyways... Um, he, uh, but anyways, as a member of the 44 Parabats, he goes right into the thick of it, uh, most notably at the, uh, attack at Kuamato, which he talks about in pretty lengthy detail operationally, and that's something I'd love to have Peter himself break down, but, um, it's, it's a slog, like, they, they land via, um, helicopter-borne assault, and... It's like trench fighting, right? This yeah. isn't Rhodesia anymore. This isn't even Angola or born. This isn't like nothing he's ever dealt. This is a straight up like conventional battle against these Swapo guys with like Cuban and East German advisors right beside them, shooting at the South Africans. Like this is not, um, this is not a counterinsurgency war. This is a straight up like 
Yeah. This is almost like World War... This is almost like Falklands in Africa. I, I think a lot of people... Generally, I think coming from almost like political reasons for why they think this, think of like Rhodesia and South African wars as like, you know, this very superior force that's like always attacking these kind of ragtag communist guerrillas. But no, in many cases, the communist guerrillas are just as well equipped, if not more so, than the Rhodesians. It's, yeah, it's, um, they're getting hammered sometimes by like heavy artillery and armor and stuff. Absolutely. And, uh, there are armored battles during this time. There's, these are big battles. Right? Yeah, these are, this is a this is a big boy conflict. Um, very very conventional, and uh, at Kwamato, like for the first day, like they the South Africans actually get pushed back. Like they aren't able to hold trenches, and for like the, basically the first time in his career, he actually has to take part in a general withdrawal, which he doesn't like. He doesn't it goes against every bone in his body. I'm sure to be retreating in his mind, right? To be given the order, like, we, we gotta pull back. We can't hold these trenches. We gotta pull back, reorg. Uh, and the second day, they just they go right in, and it's a hell of a firefight. My puma touched down a clearing among the low scrubby trees, and we had no, no sooner jumped out than we were under fire. We caught sight of four FAPLA men, hiding in bushes trying to load an RPG-7 to fire at the puma, and blasted them. One died immediately, and the rest stuck their hands straight in the air. By contrast to my experiences in Rhodesia, these men were made POWs and taken back for interrogation, more used to intelligence alive than dead. We advanced in a sweep line through the dense trees towards the camp and spent the rest of the day clearing out one line of trenches after another. The K-cars had really shot the guts out of Swapo, but we still went through our drills, attacking with covering fire, firing, doubling forward, firing again, grenading the trenches and underground bunkers, firing into them to make sure the enemy were dead, consolidating and moving on. In the darkness of one deep bunker, I was nearly caught out by the enemy's old trick of pretending to be dead. As I moved cautiously inside, shining my torch about, out of the corner of my eye I spotted the glistening skin of a black Swapo gorilla behind me. There was no time to turn my body. In an instant I swung my pistol up and over my left shoulder and shot him three times. So this is similar to stuff we might read in uh, And We Go On or Storm of Steel. Like, it's very, yeah. it's a very tough, intense. By the way, uh, FAPLA is another African communist group that was allied to SWAPO. I don't remember yeah, what it LA actually, stuff, yeah. actually stands for. Angolan communist group, one of many. Yes, one of many. Uh, yeah, their name is a bit funny, but yeah, other than that, they're not really that notable. Other than... Mackley shoots one of them yeah. three times. Well, no, he shot a Swapo guy. Oh, sorry, it was a Swapo guy. Yes, okay. yeah. But yeah, no, FAPLA is basically just another one of these groups that's aiding Swapo. Yeah. Kind of the if, number two if, if threat, you were to I take guess. Out, if you were to take out Swapo, FAPLA, and you are to just, like, what war is this? Everyone would be like, that's World War One. That yeah. sounds like a World War One account. Like, taking trenches, taking different trench lines and just advancing. Yeah. This is the type of fighting that sometimes the South Africans are getting themselves into. Yeah. Not all the time. Not all the time. They're running fire force missions. They're doing stuff in uh, uh, South West Africa, modern-day Namibia that was a little bit different, where they had, like, the Kofu groups go out with the... the um, the different lettered teams and stuff. They basically they run fire force missions. They pursue. They'd have dog teams, helicopter teams. South of the, Southwest Africa had a motorcycle specialist team that operated in the same way as like a conventional cavalry 
or sorry, a historical cavalry unit would have mentioned just having a speed mobility, be able to get around the enemy and deploy as like a like a dragoon soldier of old. It was um, Rhodesia with a lot more money, basically. <laughs> Pretty much, right? Yeah. A lot more resources, but at the same time, a much tougher enemy. Uh, that was getting increasing support from the black population within South Africa and the international community in terms of arms and munitions and expertise in the form of Cuban, East German, Soviet, and sometimes Chinese advice. So these were these were tough engagements. Peter kind of rotates between operations and a training role at different times because again he's a pretty high ranking NCO, he's a sergeant major warrant officer in the South African Defense Force. He is treated pretty well. His his wife is working. Uh, his family's kind of growing up in South Africa with him. Uh, things are going all right, but he's getting old, and you can see like kind of the writing on the wall as far as his military career goes. It's it's like kind of time to move on for him. Um, but he does go out on one final major operation, one final operational like, like combat parachute jump. And uh, it's pretty rough because, like, he this this is probably one of the most visceral experiences, and it stays with him. Um, it's it's like the one that really has stayed with him in the book, and he emphasizes that it stayed with him throughout his life. Uh, and it's this incident where a soldier um, loses his leg to a landmine blast, and uh, you know it's it's just it's just a it's just a rough time. Peter kind of loses his temper uh, during this firefight. It's like the only time he really like kind of crosses his own professional boundaries in terms of what he believes to be just and right. And it's it's quite the moment, but this is his, basically his last uh, operational mission in the SADF. His foot had gone. There was just a torn stump of bone and sinew. No blood. The flesh was cauterized by the fire of the explosion. I felt terrible physical sympathy looking at him. He was so young, no more than nineteen. His life had been utterly, irrevocably changed. He stared at me, his eyes wide in shock, and cried out, I'm an athlete, Sergeant Major. I'm a springbok. I knelt down beside him and held him in my arms. There was nothing else I could do. I shouted for everyone to search the track immediately round them in case there were more mines. The young man in my arms began to cry. He was thinking of his career as an athlete, gone like his foot, in an instant. Happily, he could feel no pain, yet. While the others cleared the track, I could do more than hold him tight in my arms, like a son, while the tears rolled down his sweat-stained cheeks, and he gazed at the ground, bemused, shattered by what the mine had done to his life. The doctor came up as soon as he could, moved on, moving on the cleared ground. And then someone at the back of the column shouted the alarm. An enemy vehicle was coming. Our track had just let our track had just led us across a road, and the rear party could see a large Soviet ZIL truck trundling up the road towards us about a mile away. I lost my temper. The pain of sympathy for that young Springbok turned to fury. I ran back down the track to the road and rapidly deployed the guys at the back of our column in immediate ambush positions. They ran and hid in the scrub at the side of the dirt road. Someone had dug a trench at the junction of the track and the road. There was a large tree beside it. I hid behind the tree and waited, 
seething with rage. It's no good ambushing vehicles from the side of the road because the target is too fleeting. When the ZIL truck came up close, I stepped out in full view in the road and blasted the cab head-on with my galil, smashing the windscreen and raking the three enemy MPLA inside. As it passed, swerving and slowing up, I shot another enemy soldier sitting in the back. The guys in their immediate ambush positions finished the truck off. The guys in their immediate ambush positions finished the truck off, pumping a fearsome weight of fire into it as it rolled past them to a stop. One enemy soldier jumped off with an RPG rocket which he fired off into the bushes. The rocket hit a water bottle on the belt of one of the South African soldiers. He was lucky. I suppose the water absorbed most of the energy of the explosion, but a chunk was blown off his arse. So that is basically an account of Peter witnessing a very, an all-too-common tragic injury in war and sort of going sicko mode because of it. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, he did lose his temper. He says it. Yeah. Right, he straight up lost his temper. Um, that's actually the last combat engagement he mentions as far yeah. as South Africa goes. His career kind of concludes with one final parachute jump just because he's... Uh, He's at I think five hundred and three at this point. He had a lot. He had, like he had like over five hundred jumps. Um, mm-hmm. Seventeen of them operational. So I think it was his five hundred and third parachute jump. He does it, and then uh, he goes into the civilian world right after that. He's just like, "Yep, this is this is my career, and uh, I kind of have to move on." Right away, he's recruited out of the army by a fellow by the name of John Bishop, as recommended by his buddy. Mark Adams into a security company called Coin Security Group. John Bishop being another one of these characters. He was a former corporal in the South African Army, uh, now a self-styled kind of major. Now, Coin was not Colonel Callan's organization or anything like that, but uh, it did try to run itself on military lines. Because again, as we talked about with... Uh, the last podcast with where we discussed Colonel Callan, like the early PMC days, the early mercenary days in the 60s and 70s, it was all very ad hoc, right? It was, we're going to make like a private army and run it on army lines, and there wasn't really thoughts about shareholders and stocks and the, linking it with the military-industrial complex and winning contracts and stuff like that. That wasn't the priority. It was just like, we're going to create our own army, right? We create our own army with blackjack and hookers. Exactly. Okay. Quite literally most yeah. of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was another one of those little little groups that, and of course the, the word coin, counterinsurgency, counterinsurgency warfare, even though that's not, it just, it's another one of those incidental names, like the security advisory services, the SAS, right? Yeah. Just another one of these, these uh, innuendo things that existed in the time. Just another one of these innuendo things that existed in this era. Uh, Coin was one of those groups. However, unlike, say, Mike Horr's legendary wild geese, these guys were not <laughs> a private army by any stretch of the imagination. It was basically white leadership in apartheid South Africa kind of giving orders out to a bunch of black security guards that would guard like malls and farms and houses and stuff like that. It was a far cry from Colonel Callan or uh, Mike Hors the Wild Geese. It was even more ad hoc. 
and really just a glorified rent a cop company. Pretty much, right? yeah. Where this guy was like, I'm I'm now major uh, John Bishop or whatever. Yeah. Which could be quite hazardous. South Africa during this time is a bit of a dangerous place. But yes, right. I, I'd agree with you. It is a bit of a sort of, well, I mean, it's they're security guards at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah. But again, because the the security industry was so, not rudimentary, but it's in its infancy as far as the corporate side of things went. Um, there was a lot of, there was not a lot of, prof- there was not a lot of professionalism as far as the operations of these organizations went. Uh, a lot of these black security guards were severely overworked. They're supposed to work like on a certain cycle, like one day on, t- or, t- or sorry, two days on, one day off kind of deal, right? On a rotating basis, uh, supposed to work 12 hour shifts. But sometimes these guys are pulling 16, 18 hour shifts and not getting the one day that they're entitled to off or not getting holidays off. and it's apartheid South Africa. You're a black guy working in like working for white owners for white clients. You don't have a lot of uh, negotiating. Yeah, you don't have a lot of negotiating negotiating power. Now, what you could do was strike, which was a very common thing with uh, just basically any industry that had black workers and stuff during this era. Because in the apartheid system in South Africa. Um, if you're a black living in a rural area where poverty was rampant or you're in some sort of black township, you want to go to work in the white areas because of the apartheid system. You could technically work there in certain industries like the security industry, uh, but there you could not bring your family over. You had no bargaining rights. You had no – you might you might be in, in a union of some sort, but the in terms of the power that you actually have to negotiate with – a white, basically, they were like, as the name, as the word implies, like apartheid. It's like two different sets of rules, right? The white rules don't apply to you, nor do the black rules. They're in this like limbo zone where there are no rules for you that that you can you can kind of uh, reference to defend your case. If there's a labor dispute, you just have to suck it up. Um, and as as Peter mentions, like these guys sucked it up because of money. They weren't even close to, and you know, I've heard all kinds of uh, bad things about the security force auxiliaries in Rhodesia because, again, they were all former terrorists, basically, right? That had defected mm-hmm. to Rhodesia, and there were serious problems with motivation. Um, a lot of the Rhodesian Defense Regiment soldiers towards the end of the war had serious motivation problems. There was drug use issues. Uh, blacks and coloreds and Asians and stuff. They weren't very motivated to fight for Rhodesia at the end. And we hear all these stories. It's interesting that Peter mentions that those security force auxiliary guys and stuff were even like significantly more motivated than these security guards, right? Uh, just because they at least had some measure of training, they had some measure of like actual organization. Um, they're kind of in a contract where they live a military lifestyle twenty four hours, and yeah, there's like drug use issues. Rhodesia was collapsing at the time, but those guys were way more motivated than these security guards that he's now dealing with. These guys are just poor schmucks that are scraping by to support their families, living in this kind of messed up, goofy system, kind of destined to fail from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, he has to deal with labor disputes and stuff, and it's a completely different environment. He has to deal with, like, number one, guys that were 
unmotivated and severely overworked, right? A lot of instances, guys would literally nod off during work work hours. They'd be in their security post and they'd be supposed to be doing a patrol around a farm or something or a shopping mall or whatever uh, white-owned property there was in South Africa and they would just clock out. And at some point, and there were instances where um, a British or a Boer white owner would come out and be like, hey, where's uh, where's Buddy? Like, he was supposed to be patrolling. I walked out at 2 a.m. I didn't see him and, and Peter, being a nice guy, would always make the excuse like, well, did you check the washroom? And of course, apartheid, black washrooms, right? Mm. The whites didn't go in the black washroom, so obviously the owner would have said, no, I didn't check the washroom. And it's like, well, how long were you out there? Like, oh, I don't know, like five minutes? Maybe he was taking a piss. Ever thought of that? Mm-hmm. So he he always sticks up for these guys as much as he can, um, but he's not a f- fan of how things are run. Uh, unfortunately, he finds himself getting bored again, and he's given an opportunity to conduct a parachute jump as part of this company with a bunch of South African Defense Force veterans. There are a lot of veterans at this point towards the 90s, the end of apartheid. So it wasn't hard finding parachute qualified guys. And it's just like, we're going to do a parachute display on behalf of the company to show off our uh, capabilities as like a private army, right? Even though like these guys weren't the actual security guards, they're like managers and supervisors and stuff. They weren't doing the rounds um, just to, just to show off. So he conducts his free fall on behalf of the company. His family's there. There's a lot of like civilians watching and stuff. And, uh, so they, they, they do a free fall jump. They, they go into the diamond, like the ring or whatever, the formation for, that you typically see at parachute uh, displays. I don't know if you've seen a parachute display before. Probably like once or like twice. Yeah. Yeah. Where, they, where they come down, they have like a flag or they got smoke Yes, on yeah, I've seen that. You know, yeah. stuff like that. Or you've probably seen them in movies. They oh, definitely. They do like yeah. James Bond stuff, right? Yeah. So they do all that. Things are going okay. Peter had some issues with the parachute earlier. He was kind of skeptical of it, but he's like, you know what, I'm, I've done this like 500 other times. This is a piece of cake. Pulls a ripcord, nothing happens, which is not not a good feeling, right? So either we're going to have, things are going to be super delayed, or I have to switch to my reserve chute, so my secondary parachute. So he has to, he's making these decisions in like split seconds, right? And he goes through the whole sequence of events, in quite a few pages, it's like two or three pages worth of text where he's like describing this. But in reality, this he's making these decisions in like thirty seconds. But it obviously feels like slow motion. Um, eventually, that parachute does deploy. He's like, "I'm not going to deploy my reserve." He makes that decision. His parachute is all messed up when it comes out and tangled and barely catches air. Needless to say, he has a very, very rough landing. His head gets smashed into his chest, right? Basically, he, he's, he lands so hard that his head, he feel he remembers, and, you know, we're not, I'm not sure if he even knows what exactly happened, but, like, he felt his head smashing into his chest. Just to give you guys an idea of, like, the, the intensity of the landing, like, he felt his bones like liquefying, like he was, he was thrown thrown around a little bit um, by terra firma, right? And 
he did burst several arteries and stuff. Like, he was bleeding from everywhere and still, like, awake through all of this. And he, and he remembers being put into the, um, the ambulance completely messed up and uh, they're apply, I think they're applying a tourniquet to his leg or they're, they're doing something to his leg and his son, he remembers seeing his son, who was, his son, um, who was I think probably four or five years old, and his wife Jane show up beside the ambulance. His wife, obviously being a nurse, immediately like helped and chimed in and all that. Uh, there was another kid there because a bunch of civilians gathered around to check check out what was going on. And as this paramedic was treating his leg, doing something to his leg, because just because he was bleeding everywhere, a kid yelled out to his son, oh god, they're cutting off your dad's leg. Which is which is pretty uh, traumatic for like a four-year-old to hear. So it was not a good time and he basically for the next two years, if not long, really kind of longer, um, for quite some time. It's almost like a blur as he talks about it. I don't know if it's exactly two years but because it, it's kind of a blur. He's in and out of hospitals. He has these like kind of periods where he recovers and he comes back and uh, you know he's like maybe I should just amputate my leg uh, and he has like kind of back and forth with doctors do I amputate my legs and stuff and you know this and that there's there's all kinds of surgeries he needs to have despite the fact that he's a veteran and the, like he's being pensioned as a South African Defense Force member it's really not enough, and the medical bills really start piling up because of the it's just you know even though you're a white guy in South Africa, you'd assume that uh, because of apartheid and stuff, they had it really really good, and uh, to some extent it's true that South Africans had a very good like healthcare system in terms of the quality of healthcare, but uh, it, the elements of it and to this day it still remains like it's a very like private system like. You show up cash in hand for surgeries and stuff. Uh, you pay per night for the hospital beds, all that, all that good stuff. So it's a very private system. There isn't like a the, the protection that like a Western health insurance would provide you, right? In private systems or public payer systems where you have that like safety net from the government, like there's none of that. Even though this is white South Africa, so the medical bills start piling up and. Um, it, it, I guess it's one of the factors that eventually makes him leave South Africa. He does slowly recover over time. Certain points, he's wheelchair bound. There is a there is a pretty serious incident where, basically, he he's kind of turned to just drinking and being depressed because of this injury, uh, and the fact that he's not really recovering. His wife has to pay all the bills now. He has no sense of purpose. So one day, his buddies from the South African army show up to cheer him up and they have a great fantastic party now it's not too rowdy and you know if people think with soldiers especially like there'd be brawls and um, people being thrown out windows and uh, keg stands and uh, you ever play buck buck I have not played buck 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 buck's like when you have like two guys in office chairs and you they joust <laughs> you ever heard of that so they have like you have a broom and everyone wears like armor and stuff. And uh, I've done and something then, similar once, but we didn't call it buck buck. Yeah, there's different names for it, yeah. but like, but yeah, like that, jousting that's like a on soldier. That's like a soldier yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Like 
you had jousting on officers, and you wear like a garbage can as a helmet. Yeah, gotta, yeah, yeah. We've 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 done this yeah. once. So someone yeah. shoves the chair, right? You need to have your squires push you. So yeah, you know, that's what we think of when we think of like a party. But this wasn't a particularly crazy party. It's just they're playing. Loud music somewhat loud music and they were drinking and kind of chatting loudly right it wasn't like rowdy at the same time South Africa had actually declared a state of emergency because as we mentioned earlier a lot of these labor disputes had gotten really bad to the point where even though Peter was injured he's like in a wheelchair he had to be called in to work sometimes even though he's not supposed to be working he had to be called in to like help with these labor disputes and uh, there's definitely external influences on it. Obviously, Nelson Mandela being in prison was getting international notoriety. Um, the ANC were getting international support financially uh, in, in terms of like just people actually physically showing up to South Africa to help like support them or help with their protests. Uh, people organizing protests in major cities in New York and London, right? The whole anti-apartheid movement was really in full swing. Also some terrorism, some of the nastier stuff. Yeah, some of the nastier stuff, the terrorism, um, the UMK attacking churches, like everything was really ramping up. And, uh, I mean, obviously there were some serious black nationalists in the mix, but these, a lot of the poor blacks, whenever they were just told to do something, they had to follow along in the same way, in the same vein, in the same vein of the black security workers at the coin security company having to just do what they were told and work these ridiculous hours and stuff and get yelled at all the time, uh, get underpaid, not be able to bring their families to live with them and stuff. In the same vein as that, uh, when there was a general strike, a union, a black union declared a strike, like we're no longer working, we're going to protest, these guys had to show up, right? And there's actually this very telling, like, moment where Peter, he's in his like wheelchair actually, he has to be rolled in to help with this situation because he has experience with this right, and uh, there's a female African female, like black African female, who's leading this like pretty aggressive protest not quite a riot, but like choice words were being said Things were being knocked over that shouldn't have been knocked over. You know, it was getting it was getting dicey, and like Peter's there to defuse the situation, figure out what the grievances are. Also, and all, because there was a state of emergency declared in South Africa at the time, like a national emergency or war measures or however you want to call it, martial, basically martial law. He had the authority to just like get everybody arrested, but he's just like, okay, the the, the jails are overfilling. Like, I, just, it's not. We're gonna lose our whole workforce. We have to figure out who the ringleaders are, what the grievances are. Does anyone need to be arrested? Because they're just going to be whisked away with no due process, right? And he's talking to this relatively young black woman who's leading the union, and he's just like, okay, well, what are your grievances? Like, why are you here? Why are you protesting? And, and the woman says, honestly, I, I don't know. I was just told to do this. And that's just Africa for you. This is TIA, right? It's just... Peter doesn't know either. Like Paris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like Peter doesn't know either. This woman doesn't know. It's just like we've been told by our respective factions to be here. Right? And that's that's kind of the tragedy, the whole damn situation. Is there's there are pretty extreme political actors on both sides of the apartheid thing. 
and they controlled the narrative, and regular people had to fight these battles on the ground for them. Um, and and they they really created a, a kind of a, but especially towards the end, a very toxic political system for everybody, uh, and that's one of the reasons that. Uh, at least in my opinion, that a lot of like white South Africans were like, fuck it, whatever, Mandela's fine by the end. Because this the national security law was also, this, this was it just the emergencies law or something? I don't know the exact terminology of it. By the way, I'm not super well-versed in like apartheid history per se. I've read a little bit from the Truth and Reconciliation thing in South Africa, the TRC. Um, I've obviously know a bit about Mandela and Ian Smith and Rhodesia because they're all kind of connected, but like it, like the police tended to use this law not only to just like arbitrarily arrest black people, right? Um, because that's what they did to break up this this protest and riot that this almost riot that Peter had to deal with, but they also used this law as like an excuse to kind of have free reign and do whatever they felt like doing and solve problems a lot easier because uh, you take away due process. And this is exactly what happened at this party. So they're going back to this not-so-rowdy party, rowdy but not-so-rowdy party, they get a noise complaint. And with all this context in mind, a single South African police officer, the South African uh, SAPS police service guy, shows up, knocks on the door, and says, hey, you guys are being really, really loud. Don't you guys realize there's, like, an emergencies act right now? We're under martial law. Like, you guys have to turn off the music. Now, he's saying this, 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 um, this chud is saying this to a chad. The guy that answers the door is this, like, big burly paratrooper, and the exact words are, fuck off. <laughs> and he closes, slams the door on the cop. And the cop's like, okay, whatever, have a good evening. The guys continue to just drink and talk loudly, play their music, when all of a sudden, the South African police throw in a bunch of CS tear gas, and everybody's coughing and gagging, it's, it's horrible, because it's pretty, it's like a bungalow, so a single story house, they throw a bunch of like gas bombs inside, and tear gas, and they come in with batons, and they arrest everybody, except for Peter, because Peter's in a wheelchair, and they're just like, we're not going to bother with him, Right? And they arrest all these like ex paratroopers or serving paratroopers. They throw them in jail, and because the jails at this point are filled to the brim with like black dissidents, right? Because they're just arbitrarily arresting everybody. They don't have enough room for these guys, so they make them it's just another goofy apartheid thing. They make they made them sign declarations of guilt. <laughs> Admitting they were guilty. Now, I'm sure there would be, like, a court summons or, like, a fine associated with it afterwards. But it's just like, you are, you are now guilty. Sign here. <laughs> Basically just, no. you have been a very naughty boy. Sign this, like, yeah, yeah. if they go home. <laughs> yeah, and they literally sent them home. But it's saying, like, you are guilty. You admit guilt. Now, it sounds goofy because you still got to go home at the end of it. But it's just, like, you just signed away your rights to... Your, your right to like any due process or arbitration or mediation or a trial or a jury trial any like anything you don't get any hearings you're just guilty right all these guys are completely pissed drunk and they just got CS gas so they they all sign they go back to the house and as a middle finger to whoever filed the noise complaint um, they party even louder and they go harder a little bit harder 
And then, like, within, like, a few minutes or a few hours or whatever, the South African police show up again. They tear gas the place. This time they bring dogs and batons and more guys. They're way more aggressive, and everybody actually does get arrested. The second time around, all on the same night, and Peter is just sitting in his living room now, gagging from the tear gas. His living room is completely trashed because it's been raided twice in the same night. And all his buddies just got arrested. And he's sitting there gagging in, like, the ruins of his home. Um, and it's one of those moments where he's just like, I fucking had enough of this place. Right. Yeah. The The last straw is basically when his he, he hears his son one day casually refer to, like, a black guy as a racial epithet. And he's just like, I don't want to re- raise my children here. I don't want to get CS gas in my own home. Yeah, this this is this is, no longer this is all wife. going very badly, and it's yeah. a very racially divided, very oppressive environment. And he's like, I, I yeah, had didn't enough. Up, like he didn't show up there for any like racial reasons. He showed up there to be a professional soldier, right? Yeah, and that's he's just like, there's no opportunity for that here, and yeah, I I I don't want to raise my son in this climate. Right? Yeah. And it was just because his son used it, not just like straight up, like casually he was referring to a black guy that was like walking by or whatever as that word. Yeah. We won't say the word, but basically it's the South African equivalent of the N-word. Yeah. Yeah. So after 10 years away from the United Kingdom, he returns uh, this time now with Jane, his wife, and his young son. I think he has a daughter at this point. He's not a kid. He's another kid at this point, if I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So second kid, and um, he's still kind of recovering from his injuries, but he's slowly getting fitter. And uh, in in the United Kingdom, he gets some of the surgeries that he wasn't able to afford. Basically, in South Africa, uh, and and pretty quickly, just because of his connections, he's able to get a job again with a security company called KMS. What the heck did that stand for? Just it was just probably just KMS. I'm asking you. I, I have no idea. KMS. Maybe like I don't know. What's some British Kill myself. word? That's what. See, that's that's what I. Knightfordshire Municipal yeah. Service or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, whatever. So KMS Security British. Company. Working with this uh, security company and going back to the UK. Peter has a really good quote in his book where he kind of describes, kind of his disillusion where he describes his disillusionment with the private security world versus the army world and really just it 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 really embodies like his experience with the mercenary mindset versus the professional soldier mindset and the dichotomy between the two because he lives in both worlds he's certainly lived in both worlds by now having kind of alternated back and forth between private security mercenary stuff to uh, straight up being a professional soldier, and this this is an excellent piece from the book. Of course, everyone has to pay the bills, me included. But what I could not stomach was finding so many of them with absolutely no belief in what they were doing. This is, by the way, uh, when he says them, this is in reference to professional soldiers that have gone into the private military contracting slash mercenary world. 
I firmly believe if you agree to work for someone, then you must be committed to that job, lock, stock, and barrel. I have always worked on that principle and always will. However, some of these guys are only interested in counting their money and totting up their expense accounts. They were actually not interested in the job at all. The real criteria now were pay and extras, not personal commitment, let alone risk. And God, what a pity. What a waste of good men. What prostitution. They are masquerading, pretending that they still have a devotion to duty, which in the civilian world means the job, whereas in fact they are saying, my loyalty, my dedication, and my devotion to duty can be bought. For that, whether civilian or soldier, there is no excuse. I think what Peter is getting there, and I mean, talk about um, someone like you mentioned up Mad Mike Hoare. We both read a bit about Mad Mike Hoare. Those stuff like, those guys kind of went to, you know, these hell holes in the Congo and stuff. Like, they weren't expecting to get rich. They were doing it mainly for, like, because they were soldiers. They believed that they were making a difference or because they, they they truly enjoyed that work. And their tech, they were straight up in the, like, Congolese army. Yeah. Right? They were, like, a unit in the Congolese army. They weren't, like, an external third-party yeah. hired force. They were straight up, like, you are drawing... Congolese army pay. Yeah, and even and some so of the the later guys, like uh, talking about like Blackwater recently, like a lot of Blackwater were ex U.S. Uh, army or ex U.S. Marines or whatever, who were saw that kind of as a way to continue fighting alongside the U.S. Army. Yeah, like yeah. the older guys that had done their time. Yeah, they, 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 there they was, wanted to go back. Yeah, like Blackwater was kind of, yeah. you know, we're here to help out the guys in our, you know, the, the other guys, the guys who are still wearing the uniform. Yeah. Wearing the uniform. Um, what Peter is being critical of, though, is the guys who basically just treat it, are just in it for the money. The There's no sense of duty to whether to their organization or their country or whatever cause they're fighting for. Purely just in it for the money. Yep. Yeah. He sees that a lot in Coin. He sees that a lot with the guys that joined Colonel Callan's group initially. Oh yeah, he sees it. He's seen it a lot of it, and um, he, he definitely sees it at times with this uh, new company he works for in the UK. However, a very interesting opportunity comes up for Peter, and it's one of the it's one of the ones that he's really known for now, especially with the with the recent documentary. Some of you guys might have heard of um, that was released last year, twenty twenty one killing Escobar and uh, it all starts with a very interesting ask Peter is given an opportunity to go to a country called Colombia uh, again he give as with every new conflict Peter gets involved and I think this is conflict number six right he gives great context to uh, Colombia and the situation going on there uh, we kind of skipped over this part, but he also has a very brief kind of mercenary contract in Uganda and kind of just like a close security role. Yeah. Not really like a training mission. He's just basically a security guard in Uganda. Yeah. Um, uh, but just from that, it, the next like contra- major contract where he's like leaving the UK is this very serious one in, in Colombia. And again, great contacts from Peter himself. The FARC, Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, is a communist organization which receives political support from Cuba 
in the form of Cuban commissars who train and indoctrinate the FARC military groups called Frentes. Over the years, FARC has carried out some dramatic attacks on the Colombian government. Perhaps the most spectacular being the total destruction of the Justice Building in the center of Bogota, along with all the documentation on FARC and other anti-government groups. In accordance with Mao Zedong's principle of liberated areas, their control over the vast scrublands of the Llanos and the jungle further south is almost complete. They are so confident that they run big training camps where they openly fire weapons on jungle ranges, bring in local villagers for indoctrination and film shows, and drive about in Russian vehicles, all in broad daylight under cover of the jungle canopy. The Colombian army and police enter the area at their peril. And then there's actually a bit of where Peter's just uh, has some dialogue, and then I, there's a second part of this description that I will read right now. The story rang true, especially the part about the army being piggy in the middle, but I had to be careful. Every year, Colombia produces 185 metric tons of cocaine, which converts to a street value of $44 billion U.S., most of which is controlled by Colombian cartels. The staggering figure excludes profits these drug traffickers make from marijuana and increasing trade in the even more profitable cultivation of heroin poppies. It also excludes the profit made by Colombian cartels from trafficking cocaine grown south of Colombia in Peru and Bolivia. Legal national exports simply cannot compete. The World Bank values Colombia's legal production of coffee, bananas, cut flowers, clothing, ferro-nickel, and coal at a mere 5.8 billion U.S. Is any surprise that the corruption of drugs infects every layer of Colombian society and that most, if not all, important government appointments are affected by it? I wondered how the people backing this job fitted in. I knew FARC was involved with drugs, and essential for all guerrilla groups is adequate finance. Like communist movements all over the world, FARC extorts local taxes from tribesmen and villagers, and they still kidnap whites from time to time. But their main source of funds is growing cocaine in the jungle and selling the unrefined base to the drug cartels in Medellin. This produces a cash flow which must be the envy of every distant group in the world. However, I've been fighting communism in one form or another all my life, so the job sounded good enough to me, and we flew out to Bogota to have a closer look. So, just to explore further on that um, context. Well, yeah, this is written in the, in the mid-90s, so he's a lot, yeah. a lot of present tense. Yes. Uh, today that we've past tense because FARC is not really a... No, they, <laughs> really they a technically still exist, but yeah, they're not, not really a... a yeah, same with Shining Path in Peru. Yeah, yeah. So, South American politics... What, what edition are we actually reading here? We should uh, we should clarify, because I don't think we clarified... We, we probably did say it on the last episode, but just for clarification, this is the 1993 edition. So 1993. The, I think apartheid's still going on when he wrote this. Yeah, no, and I think uh, Escobar's still alive. Yes, he hasn't yeah. even died yet. So hence why he's saying, like, the Colombian uh, cocaine trade is so crazy. Because yeah. it was still, like, at So some of our listeners have probably watched the, uh, I guess, docudrama series on Netflix, Narcos, which goes, if you really want to sort of learn about Colombia at that time, that's a fairly good resource. Uh, yeah. th- there's certainly some historical problems with that show. We could go into it a different date, but overall, that's a good picture of what it was uh, like at the time. Um, Colombia is a very poor country. It uh, had this open communist insurgency, which is fighting the government. Plus, it had like kind of there were 
Peter doesn't really mention them much, but there were extreme, like, sort of right-wing paramilitaries, on the other hand, who, um, you know, opposed FARC, and both both sides didn't show a whole lot of uh, respect for civilian life. And on top of all that, if that wasn't bad enough, you have this just, out of nowhere, this huge, basically, cocaine boom that funds these extremely violent and extremely powerful drug cartels. And they're mixed up with FARC because both groups are sort of wanted by the government. Yep. A mess. Yes. And a mess, a mess that Peter's jungle. stepping into. Yeah. That's right. So he uh, he makes his first um, first trip to Colombia. Yes, because he actually goes twice. Yeah. So the first trip is kind of a training mission where yes. he... Well, okay, initially it's marketed to him as you were going to straight up go into a FARC area... Yeah. Or compound or base or whatever. It's not really explicitly clear what because the job's kind of vague. And you're just going to kill everybody there. And yeah. Basically, you'll do a fire force mission. You're, you're going to do a big fire force mission on behalf of the Colombian Army. And we have, like, Colombian Army contacts. This is all legit above board. Um, not a heck of a lot different than what you're trying to do in Angola or what you... Uh, what you're doing in Rhodesia, even. Yep. Or South Africa. Or South Africa. Like, this is kind of very similar. So, in the same vein as what you had done in the past, you're going to show up there um, with actually a bunch of old SAS buddies, basically, that he'd served with years before, and uh, do the job on behalf of the Colombians, because they aren't, they aren't quite able to do the job. They show up there to Bogota, they go to a hotel, and they're... <laughs> it's just... It's very, like... This is where it kind of almost turns this book to, even though it's the last part of the book, it has a shift where it just turns into this like almost mob movie thing. Yeah. Where they go into a hotel and they're told like there will be a man here, he will meet you at this time, right? And you're like, okay. And if it was like a typical spy novel or spy story, that spy would actually show up, or the officer or the agent or whatever would show up, but nobody shows up, and for like three days, and they think they're being followed and stuff. Yeah, they just hang around Bogota for three days. Yeah, they're like, what the heck's going on? Like, this guy was supposed to be here like in 30 minutes, and then and finally the guy shows up like three days late, and he's like, sorry, like, the, the colonel will meet you now. He will be here in 30 minutes again. And then they're like, oh, okay, good, good, good. And then he leaves, and he doesn't come back for like another like few days, and they're just... It's like what the hell's going on? This colonel walks in and he's in a he's in a allegedly he's a colonel in the Colombian army, and he's in a suit and tie and stuff. And it's just he's obviously um, in with certain criminal elements. And slowly, like as they continue to get more information about these guys, uh, they find out that they're actually basically working for one of the cartels that has government connections. Right. However, of course, because of this cartel has government connections, they're anti-FARC. Long story short, slowly they're discovering they're working for mobsters. And uh, Peter actually is a really good, another really good excerpt where he talks about this and talks about basically how brutal, I guess, Latin America can be. For the righteous who are scandalized by my working with a mafia and drug baron, it is worth explaining something more of Colombian society. 
which it must be said with massive understatement is rather different to our own quiet and structured life in Britain. Colombians live on the edge of violence, and always have. The country was born in violence. In the 17th century, Spanish, French, and English adventurers murdered each other up and down the Caribbean in their quest for the gold of El Dorado, officially encouraged by the kings and queens of Europe. The Spanish finally settled the northern coast of Colombia and set about murdering the Indians who stood in their way, ably assisted by their priests who burned more Indians in the name of the Spanish Inquisition and for the good of their souls. Plenty more people died in slavery. The tendency to murder was maintained throughout the 19th into the 20th century with ruling settlers fighting each other in endless civil wars. The last ended as recently as 1960 after 16 terrible years called La Valencia, when rival conservatives and liberals between them killed some 300,000 people. In a land consumed with machismo, without doubt bitter memories live on. On top of all that, and in addition to the usual dose of South American corruption, the country nowadays is torn between the FARC communists, with all the typical violent communist tricks of indoctrination and terror, and the brutalities of the huge drug business. There are at least 15,000 murders every year, most, most drug-related. In Colombia, there are no shades of gray on the fragile front line between life and death, and this violent history seems to have resolved itself into a straightforward conflict between the right and the left. The Colombian army is basically right-wing and allows the local militia, a sort of home guard, to do what it likes as long as it suppresses communism. In other words, in stark Colombian terms, the army condones at minimum the support of the drug business as long as the worst menace of a communist takeover is defeated. So yeah, that's Colombia, and it is a very violent society, and there's a lot of drugs and corruption on both sides of this. And the first time Peter goes, he's basically sort of training local militia, local anti, that anti-communist militia he was talking about for a guy named uh, Gacha. And Gacha is sort of the local... I don't know if he's actually... He's a pretty serious... He's a pretty serious dude. Yeah. He's a pretty serious mobster. Yes, he's a mobster. He's kind of like a local civic leader as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, he's very much sort of a mafioso, but he's like a... He's one of the top he, He's like a Sicilian mafioso. Like He has like an official job and standing in the community as well as being kind of a, a drug runner. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was a super serious guy. Like, mm-hmm. um, like almost on par with Escobar in some ways. And uh, kind of killed in the same kind of time frame as Escobar. Not a lot of these guys survived. It was, it was, yeah. a, it was a pretty brutal time. Yeah. So, he, he uh, again, is the paymaster here. Right? And it's marketed him to. It's marketed to kind of get these guys to want to do the job. Is like, oh, like you're gonna just destroy a compound, and go home. It's gonna be quick and glorious. And uh, the reality is, they want him to actually train dudes to do yeah. this kind of stuff. Even though they get like, they get like conflicting information at yeah. different times. He spends like a week where he's just hang out by a lake in what I can almost dis- describe as like an idyllic. Like, he's just, like, this vacation, yeah. and then, like, then they drag him into the jungle to train dudes, and it's... Yeah. Yeah. He, they he, kind of sell the mission to them in a certain yeah. way, and it ends up becoming a different mission. Now, that might have been, been... That might have been by design, or it could have easily been by circumstance. Like, we don't need you to do this anymore, we need you to do something else. But it's not really explained to them, they just... They're just taken along for the ride. Yeah. Uh, as, as hired guns, and... 
they're at the disposal of uh, this guy Guy Cascacas uh, cartel yep. that's it and again with uh, with a future podcast we're going to be doing where it's it's going to have a lot of German <laughs> we uh, we are not Spanish speakers yes we are both Anglophones and have probably I know you already screwed up one uh, pronunciation I didn't correct you on um Llanos you, you you pronounce it like Ilanos or whatever which means like the plains of Colombia oh okay it's pronounced Llanos yeah I L or whatever yeah, yeah there's no G- yeah it's, I was it's, I it's, wasn't seeing a J or a, yeah, a Y or yeah, anything yeah. so Medellin we had a few takes for you to pr- yeah Medellin's a bit Medellin. of a, I should know that one I watched all of Narcos yeah, yeah. but then it's, it's, it's a talk- tricky when you read it yeah. it's anyways we're not Spanish speakers so we're butchering a lot of pronunciation but um that being said, it's 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 not hard to understand that this was a very brutal place. It was kind of and it was very confusing for a foreigner to enter into, and obviously Peter doesn't speak Spanish either. So yeah, it was all through translators and stuff. You can only imagine how confusing it was being told like go to this lakeside resort. Okay, we're going to the jungle now. You're going to train militias and like I thought we we're doing a fire force mission, and they're like, no, we don't have a helicopter. I, that was that was another moment. We don't have a helicopter, and the moment he shows up, there's literally a helicopter sitting there. He's yeah. like, "What's this?" And they're like, "No habla, señor." And then yeah. they just let him, you know, train these guys. Right? It's yeah. just uh... so mission goes well overall, and uh, yeah. he's like, "Okay, this is this is a little weird, but uh, I think we can go back and next time around." Um, I think we can go back. However, the next time around, when he does show up again, it is quite a lot more serious. Yes. In terms so, of the actual asks. Yes. Yeah, so Peter basically finishes this training mission and goes back to Britain for a while. And then I, I think it's about a year later or a few months, like six, eight months later, where he's asked to come back. Yes. To, and he did a good job, obviously. Yes. Yeah, and the Colombians, especially this this guy Gacha and his his contacts in Britain, who are sort of putting him in touch with these Colombians, frame it kind of that he's come going to come and do the the same thing again, like a fire force mission. Yeah, like a fire what force was mission. Supposed to do last time. Yeah, do a fire force mission, maybe train some dudes. But when he gets there, that's not what they're. They kind of, they kind of, they're like, we're going to be real with you, Chief. Uh, this time you are doing a fire four mission, but the target is Pablo Escobar. Now, Pablo Escobar is probably everyone who listens to this podcast heard his name again, watch Narcos or read on it, but he was basically the world's most notorious and powerful drug kingpin. He, he like pioneered the cocaine trade. Uh, he was probably one of the richest people alive in the early 90s. Um, very, very powerful and very, very brutal man. Yep. And public enemy numero uno for the Colombian government. In some ways, the U.S. And, stuff. and in some ways, the U.S. And like basically the West, one of the West public enemies of the Western world in general. Yep. Uh, yeah. So especially kind of the, all the Americans and all the pro-American governments in uh, all the sort of, I guess, post-Operation Condor governments in uh, Latin America. 
all of them wanted this guy. And especially because he's not just a huge drug cartel leader, but he's also connected with FARC, the, the communist group. So, yeah, basically he's brought back to <laughs> lead a team to help kill this guy. And this is 1989. Uh, the, the op is uh, Operation Phoenix. Quite interestingly, at the back of the book, Peter... Um, lays out the entire operations order for how, how the whole thing yeah, is. Yeah, I believe... We're looking at it right now. Yeah. It goes over, he has every single team member, where they're supposed to go, yeah. helicopter. I believe this is when Escobar was in a compound, perhaps when he was under house arrest, because there was a period of time where he was under house arrest and lived... Like, Gagua? No, that's that's their base. Their base is like Gagua. They're supposed to go to... Yeah, there was a... reading the actual op... We have the op order here. Yeah. Just a villa. Yeah, there was a time where he was under Kiko. house arrest Kiko. in a, like, basically like a fairly nice, luxurious place. Yeah, it's called the Kiko. Yeah, I don't Locate know... Locate Target Villa Hacienda Napoles is what it's called. Okay. That, cool. that might be order. before... That might actually be before he was under house arrest. Yeah. But, yes, yeah, so they go into basically, after some training and, you know, planning this, they go in to basically kill Escobar. And, and um, Macleese's team is not alone in this. They're, he's part of a much larger force that I think includes a fair bit of Colombian Army soldiers. Yep. And, and pilots. Pilots. And it reminds me, actually, a lot of A.J. Ballum's book, like a lot of the ops and the, the Bantu stands, because... No one seems to know what is going on, and no one seems to know what is going on. Halfway through the op, just they just turn around. Like things start going wrong, they're getting confusing orders, and basically the birds flow in the coop, and they just sort of melt back into the jungle, albeit in sort of a confusing and sort of very chaotic way. Well, a helicopter crashes, right? Yeah, a helicopter crashes. Heli- so the. Uh... Yeah. What is it? They well, the guys on foot like meld back into the jungle, but then there's yeah, a helicopter yeah, crash. So Peter is on board the was it the Bell two hundred four? Actually, I can I can find the because again the nice thing is at the end of this book because he obviously he describes the raid and stuff, but the he has a straight up like the op order here, so you can see exactly who's in which helicopter. So okay, Hughes, it's the Hughes five hundred K car. Um, Macleese is there. Unfortunately, like the reason this this raid eventually does fail, the whole kind of command structure is inside the Hughes five hundred. There's like an assault. There's like three different. Excuse me. There's um. There's a bigger Huey helicopter, a Bell Huey, which is like pretty sizable. It's got about twelve dudes in it. That is like the assault element. There's like a command element with Peter as the commander. That Hughes five hundred goes down in the jungle. Uh, with Peter, the pilot's killed. Uh, Tompkins is and Peter are both messed up. Dave Tompkins being the other guy with him. Uh, the interpreters are all messed up. The pilot Tiger is is killed. Actually, like not immediately. Like he he's mortally wounded uh, during the crash, and Peter can only kind of give him morphine and try like just try his best to make the guy comfortable. Right, one of those situations. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, he, he Peter, despite having a lot of broken bones, escapes and evades out of the jungle. Yeah, as the other forces had to have to mold back into the jungle and yeah, so yeah, no, it. I got that confused. Yeah, yeah, Peter is in this helicopter crash. That's right. Everyone else kind of just yeah. like advances. 
there's about to be an assault and then something happens they're not sure like the helicopter crashes and then there's this confusion and people just mold yeah because the command element the so that yeah the Huey jungle. 500 yeah. command element is lost anyways we could go on for another probably 60 minutes on that rate alone yeah uh, but maybe we should leave that to part three when we talk to the man himself Peter McAleese. Yep. And that's why we don't really have a closing quote with you guys. We're yes. going to end there on a little bit of a cliffhanger uh, and, and ask him how, yeah. ask a man himself how he in need out of the Colombian jungle and yeah. uh, didn't get killed by Pablo Escobar's boys and yeah. I, I guess, what he's been up to since. Yes, I guess we should say that that's not the end of the Peter McAleese story, but that yeah. you could argue that is the, the end, end of, of No Mean book. Soldier, yeah. the book. Yes, so yeah, Peter McAleese had a incredible military career serving Indeed. through basically six different conflicts Aden, Borneo, Angola, Rhodesia, South Africa, and then Colombia. And just arguably Glasgow childhood. Glasgow example. childhood. Arguably yeah. a seventh a seventh campaign. Yeah, the the worst one of all. And yeah. he was like in Iraq later too. Like he went all over the place. Did Peter McAleese go to Iraq? It's it's in the bios. That's something I'm going to ask him because it's yeah. Not a so he story. might have actually been in more. Got uh, been all oh, Uganda. Uganda. Yeah, was he was in Uganda. A, technically yeah. a campaign. So he was everywhere. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, he's had just an incredible life as a. It's it's a true soldier of fortune story, and I I don't yep. mean that in any uh, disparaging way. I mean that in the like. He was a real life legend, and we are going to be talking to him Which is very cool, soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're we are stoked. So we'll uh, we'll leave it to Peter. We'll leave it to Peter as they say, or Papa Mike, as he went by during this mission. And I think you, you're in, from because we have talked to him already. From my conversations with Peter, I think he actually earned the Papa Mike designation in South Africa. He used it again in Colombia, but um, we're. We're going to be talking to Papa Mike himself, the legend, Peter McAleese. Uh, so Peter's doing a bit of an interview slash speaking tour circuit right now. You can follow him. Uh, probably the best place is on Instagram, Peter MacLees S-A-S. Again, at Peter MacLees S-A-S. P-E-T-E-R-M-C-A-L-E-E-S-E. S-A-S, right? Peter McAleese says, I see the Instagram on dark mode is always hard to read. We'll put the link in the description of this video so it makes it easier to find. Yeah, we can actual, do that. His actual Instagram page. We're chatting with him. But actually, yes, yeah. Actually, we're about 24 hours out right now at the time of recording this from chatting with him, so we're very excited for that. Yeah. And uh, again, if you liked what you hear, you want to you wanna support us in some way with our efforts and get cool interviews like this and opportunities like this in the future and Buy us more books, perhaps, or buy Bindu more books. Bindu's the book guy. Um, you can always support us at menamongmenstories.com. There's a Donate Now page. There's a merch store where you can make a one-time donation. Uh, if you go through the Donate Now, you can make monthly contributions. Even just a dollar tip goes a long way. That's over uh, on our Subscribestar page. Uh, if you like Militaria in general, which you probably might listening to this podcast, you can check my page out uh, at fireforce.ventures on Instagram, www.fireforceventures.com. All kinds of cool Militaria there, including uh, 
Um, hopefully some Rhodesian brushstroke stuff in the near future. And uh, Bindu, do you have anything else to shout out? Just there's going to be some very cool uh, merchandise coming very soon to the uh, Men Among Men Stories merch store. So I think you uh, guys will probably enjoy that. So keep Bindu's keep your so heads excited. He or... he stood up just now randomly. He's running around. He's yeah. stoked about the merch. Yeah, store. keep keep your uh, keep your heads up for uh, f- keep following our social media, especially our Instagram at menamongmenstories.com. Uh, and of course, if you're listening to us on where, well, wherever you are listening to us on Spotify, our friends at Commando Blog, um, our website, menamongmenstories.com, Podbean, are we on Podbean now? No, not yet. Soon. Soon. Any of the uh, RSS? We're on most most yeah. of uh, most iTunes. majors. We're on yeah. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. Yeah. We are on uh, Spotify. Wherever you're listening to us, uh, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and support. Uh, you uh, are actually maybe going to be able to hear this on YouTube in the near future because we're working on that as well. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for that. You might actually already be listening to it on YouTube. So, anyways, guys, oh, you may be listening to this in <laughs> twenty years. We have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for part three. It's going to be very exciting. And as always, a special thanks to everybody. Uh, active duty, law enforcement veterans, first responders, firefighters, bush firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, and everybody in between. Uh, Thank you for doing what you do and what you've done and uh, allowing us to do what we do. And, of course, a very special thanks to Peter McAleese for agreeing to talk to two idiots about uh, his time in, well, a lot of wars. a A lot of different wars. Thank you for tuning in to this episode 19 of the Men Among Men Stories podcast, Bindu. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a great day, guys.